Hey everyone, this episode was recorded in April of 2020, so you're going to hear a lot about the early pandemic, things like isolating, uh, social distancing, the lack of PPP. I think I'm sewing masks at this point in time. Uh, Also, I no longer have a Twitter or an X or anything of the sort, but you can still tweet or exit us at DanBrownCodePod. That's it for me, and enjoy the show. Is Hercules also known as the Great? What? Oh, no, Hercules is is just a guy. Hercule Poirot is known as the Great. (laughs) Thank you for that. He's not just a guy, he's he's a a demigod. demigod. (laughs) (laughs) That's his whole thing. Welcome to the Dan Brown Code. I'm Lena. I'm Forrest. So. We're here to talk about the lost symbol starting with chapter 21, which is a real fucking banger if you like talking about frescoes. <laughs> and I do, is the thing. Um, it's but even not, a pretty cool fresco. It is. I just don't like hearing Robert Langdon talk about frescoes. Yeah. But who does? That's the key problem of... Uh, just kind of everything Dan Brown writes. Mm. <laughs> so have you looked at have you looked at this fresco? Uh, I have not actually. I mean, I, I did when I visited the Capitol years ago. Um, but I should maybe go look at it again, and then we can have like a real time. Yeah, reaction. the page actually has some like pretty high resolution details of a lot of the parts of it. Um, but specifically it's the apotheosis of Washington. As you may recall, Langdon is like with the okay. CIA director of the office of security and like the Capitol police captain. Um, and they've been gathered around this guy's disembodied hand. And now they're taking some time out of that pressing matter to examine the art. I'm going to tell um, you right now, this is a sick fresco. It's pretty cool. He's, I love that he's, sorry, he's wearing some kind of military outfit, but also is. is wrapped in a blanket, which yes. is just real nice. Um, although, hilariously, Robert Langdon says, uh, as you can see, he's dressed in white robes, speaking of George Washington, which he's not. He's in a <gasps> kind of a lavender robe with a purple military coat. And we know it's lavender because there is someone in a white robe or white top of robe directly next to him. So it's not like a white balance issue. Yeah, no, it's it's just uh, Dan Brown is incorrectly describing this painting. And in the center around the kind of top of the dome is George Washington flanked by two goddesses. Um, it's the goddess of liberty and the goddess Victoria, the goddess of victory. And then in a ring are like 13 babes who are the 13 colonies. Oh, they are babes. Oh, they yeah. are so a lot of feet in this apotheosis. You know, uh, it turns out Constantino Brumidi as an Italian was an extremely <laughs> horny kind of guy, just like Quentin Tarantino in that fashion. <laughs> and then flanking the outside of the dome are a series of um, various gods granting and bestowing upon famous americans their boons so columbia is leading the people in war 
Minerva is like uh, showing Samuel Morse how to make a telegraph or some shit. Mm-hmm. Um, Aphrodite is laying the transatlantic telegraph cable. Things like this. Isn't Poseidon doing that? I don't know why Aphrodite would be doing that. Well, Aphrodite is born of the sea. So Poseidon is there or Neptune is there. And he's just kind of standing there looking cool with his trident. And he's making his, not his daughter, but his niece or something. I don't know. She's, <laughs> Aphrodite, I believe, oh, is yeah, born yeah. She is from holding the, the disembodied cable. dick of his dad dropped in the ocean. So maybe his sister. Um, is that right? I think that's right. couldn't tell you <laughs> anyways <laughs> um if i'm wrong don't tell me I, i'll figure it out uh, and robert langdon has to explain uh besides that is Ceres, goddess of grain and root of our word cereal she's sitting on the mccormick reaper and there's just no reason for him to tell you that's where cereal comes from it's annoying is any is the mccormick reaper here do i see it uh, I think it's, yes, the, I think I it's think. like a little hay, hay wagon. It's not as impressive yeah, looking yeah. as I was hoping. Is that her in the but, red thing? She looks great if that's her. Yeah, I think so. And like, this painting is really cool, but it does frustrate me because like Vulcan's in front of a steam engine, but you don't really get to see much of the steam engine. It's just like the little top of it. And, you know, Ceres is riding the McCormick Reaper, but like you don't really get to see the cool machinery. It's like just a wheel and looks like a hay wagon. In this picture that I'm, I'm looking at here on the Wikipedia page, um, it does look like the bottom is cut off kind of all the way around. Like, a lot of legs are missing and things. Um, so could oh, this I just guess, be I, an I see, angle thing? I don't think so, because I'm seeing the border of the of the actual, like, stonework yeah. and masonry of the dome itself. Right, right. It just feels I don't like think the artist cut off. I, think it just, I don't think so. <laughs> Excuse me, sorry. Because Danke. Um, it is annoying to say that. You're right. But he does that. He just like, listen, here's something that I read when I was Wikipedia. Well, was he Wikipedia in? What year was this? When I was, when my wife was researching, she found this little tidbit. There so was I'm definitely Wikipedia that at this point. Um, and then Langdon has the gall to bring in the most overused Arthur C. Clarke quotation of all time. Because Sato's like, you know, laying a, 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 phone cable isn't exactly like god shit and then langdon's like oh you're not to modern man but you know in the words of the futurist arthur c clark any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and just never use that quote fuck all the way off with it it's it's overplayed (laughs) oh but what you should know is that in my copy on the kindle it was the most highlighted thing in this book Yes, I was. I was. I have a. I have a written note about that that I forgot about. I just love that the most highlighted part of this book is something that someone else wrote. Yeah, no, the note. I figured I had to <laughs> type notes into my Kindle when I highlight things, and so I also highlighted. It. I'm like the fifteen hundredth person to highlight it. I must I be said, the fifteen hundredth and first in yeah, that. Case. My my note is furious that fifteen hundred morons highlighted this. So that's what I think about them. And you I just listeners. feel like it. No, just kidding. You're brilliant. I love you. <laughs> All right. Um. Yeah, Sato's, Sato has the idea that since Peter's hand is pointing upwards, they have to go up and see closer into the into the fresco. 
and Langdon's like, we, uh, we don't got to go up there. It's, it's high up. It's, it's very bad. And everyone's pointing us upwards. Um, and Langdon is still fixated on acting as though this man who has cut off his friend's hand and put it in the center of this gallery and is like pressuring him to give up ancient secrets. He's like, this guy's, this guy knows that this is a purely figurative symbol. It's not going to point anywhere. <laughs> literally that's preposterous. I wrote that down too, where they're like, you know, there's a portal at the top. It like swings open and it's hexagonal. And he's like, no, 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 my friend, this is a figurative portal. <laughs> and like, it didn't say that on the phone and it didn't say that, uh, on the hand anywhere. So, I mean, he seems to think it's a real thing. This happens a lot in this section where uh, Malach is very much like, I believe that the ancient mysteries are real and they are like physical and tangible and you will find them for me. And Langdon is like, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> the thing this person is looking for doesn't exist. And everyone around him is like, it doesn't matter if it doesn't exist, if the madman believes it exists. <laughs> oh, That's like. exactly right. It's, 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 it, it's like it's a major frustration throughout this whole section. Oh, and then Langdon is like, well, I guess I got to explain this pointing up to the sky thing. He's like, you know, this is a common thing. It's in some Da Vinci paintings. It's a symbol of man's connection to God. Um, and then Sato weirdly says, I've never seen it before. Which like, you fucking seen the Madonna on the rocks, motherfucker. You don't lie to me. It's not in the Madonna of rock. You've seen the last supper. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then Langdon's like, actually, he says it in his head because he's just being smug in his head. He's like, actually, if you watch ESPN, when football players cross the touchdown line, they get a touchdown, they'll often point up to God as though giving him credit. Um, what is he actually? He's just something really annoying. He wondered how many knew they were continuing a pre-Christian mystical tradition of acknowledging the mystical power above, which for one brief moment had transformed them into a God capable of miraculous feats. Like a touchdown. Which, like, A, may, maybe that's a pre-Christian. I mean, I'm sure people were pointing at this guy pre-Christian, but, like, also pretty clearly within, like, mainstream American religion, when you point to the God you're, or the sky, you're giving God the credit, man. You're giving God the glory. Um, just because some symbols are formally like in their actual execution the same thing doesn't mean they symbolize the same thing i wish i could hammer a nail with that engraved on it into dan brown's fucking skull <laughs> yeah i i i would i would uh posit that not many knew they were continuing a pre-christian mystical tradition um just because symbologist isn't a real job yeah. and uh <laughs> no one no one points at, at Jesus and is like, thank you for this touchdown. And is like, hmm, yeah. I wonder how long people have been pointing. Do you think the Olympians did this in ancient... They weren't in Athens. The Olympics were somewhere else, but whatever the fuck. Um, dumb. But Lang is not done explaining <laughs> to us about um, stupid shit in the Capitol Rotunda because he was That's like, right. actually, there was another person here who used to be making that exact same hand gesture... Um, there was a there was a massive sculpture of a bare-chested George Washington depicted as a god modeled after the statue of Zeus, which he says is in the Pantheon. I don't think the statue of Zeus is modeled after is in the Pantheon. Uh, well, this I, this section. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
Sorry, I, I, I need to Google. So I need to Google. So go, you go on. Yeah, this section taught me that BlackBerry is stylized with like two capital B's, um, which is a choice. I don't know why you would do that. I think I might have used to have known that. I owned a BlackBerry for a short time before I exchanged. It like it makes me believe terrible. that. That BlackBerry is two words that have been pushed together, but BlackBerry is one word. Yeah, I mean, it was in 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 the mid to late aughts when we were doing tech names, we were shoving mm-hmm. two words together and moving spaces. We weren't yet yeah, yeah. to the level of removing the E's out of ERs. <laughs> and so I think that's where once BlackBerry. But the word BlackBerry, as in the fruit, is one word. That is true. So what two words are the words black and barrier being pushed together? That's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We already have that. It's maybe, the compound word blackberry. <laughs> maybe they couldn't trademark blackberry all one word with no capitalization, but they could trademark it if they capitalized that second B. And yeah, as I thought, the statue of George Washington's Zeus is not modeled after the statue in the Pantheon. It's modeled after the statue of Zeus at Olympia, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Um. So couldn't I feel like Dan Brown could have known this? <laughs> I mean, it makes more sense, but he's he's n- he's really turned on explaining that this room is turned. the pantheon. He's just crunk. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to use that word. <laughs> it turns he's out. lit. <laughs> uh, Dan Brown's um, bay, and he's trying to use this thing, and it's really fleek. <laughs> 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 These are words that people pretended not to understand how to use four years ago. Yeah, but I'm, I'm <laughs> pretending to under, not understand how to use them now. So that's that's, that's my cute. My humor is so um, in the past that it's turned around and become cutting edge. <laughs> I feel like okay, Forrest. Aye, aye. Do you know if publishers hire fact checkers for books? I'm not sure that they, I mean, books get fact-checked. I think many fact-checkers are now contractors, but I think that there's been a general decline in the usage and quality of fact-checking that is done on books. Okay. Because this is like an easy catch. You would think so. I mean, a lot of things in your easy catches, like the fact that George <laughs> Washington is not wearing white fucking robes in that thing. <laughs> like, it seems like if you're going to fact-check this book... And he's going to talk about that fresco for like three pages. You would bring up the Google image of it, and then you just have to look up and down to fact check it. It's really easy. All right, we should move on. We're going to sit here for a, a yeah, hot second. We should. Um. <laughs> um, anyways, there's a statue of George Washington. He's shirtless, and it's it's it is it is to be fair a kind of weird looking statue when you think it's George Washington. And Langdon says that. When it was first unveiled, people were joking about Washington reaching skyward to find his clothes. And then he says, as American religious ideals changed, the joking criticism turned to controversy. And I don't think that's true because people were kind of mad about it when it was first unveiled in like 1860 or some shit. And like two years later, they moved it to the, uh, not to a shed on the East Garden, as, as Dan Brown says, but to a lawn outside. So unless like, people went from amused at this kind of humorous shirtless Washington to like shocked and outraged by it in the course of two years. It wasn't changing religious ethos. Dan Brown just loves blaming religion for shit. It was just actually, um, yeah. 
people thought it was tasteless from Jump Street. It's like not for religious reasons, but it is kind of tasteless. Just it's weird. Point blank, period. Like it's just weird to look at, and it reminds me of that statue of Abe Lincoln in the L.A. courthouse. I'm not um, familiar with that one. Oh, please, please Google it. Oh, is it in the courthouse? Yes. Oh, is my man just like shirtless in skinny jeans? <laughs> what the fuck? It's behind a Washington Post paywall. How dare you? There we go. Okay, that... He's giving you full Abercrombie model in this, in this he looks like He looks like David Tennant. He does look like David Tennant. I recently <laughs> remembered about David Tennant. Why is that there? That's so bizarre. <laughs> listener, you so have listener, to, you have to look up the me, statue. You have to look up the statue of Hot Lincoln. Um, so he's, I wouldn't say like ripped... No, he's, he's just like he's, like he's he's a little skinny. You can see his ribs, but he's he is toned. Um, he has a face like David Tennant. His nipples are lovingly carved. On. It's true, they are. Um, he he's has like cheekbones to the gods, and he's kind of leaning up. So he's got okay. I'm gonna. So he's got like some books because he's you know studious in his left hand kind of hanging down by his hip, and then he's tugging on and he's shirtless and he's tugging on his waistband. Of what appear to be like Wrangler bootcut jeans, really, um, and he's just kind of like looking down on you, like, "Hey, what's yeah, up?" Yeah, I mean, imagine a studlier Timothée Chalamet character. Yes, exactly that. This is a lot it's, to take in right now. <laughs> so this is uh, this is a statue in the L.A. courthouse. <laughs> Listen, I, I don't have you, the my, I don't have the like, mental capacity for this right now. He's got delts. He's got traps. <laughs> this is again wild. not not very ably, but so yeah, real weird. Um, and we can move on. Yeah, now, as but has been I, happening, uh, <laughs> Sato's staff back at the CIA has been dutifully googling the hand of mysteries, okay. uh, which is not when you send your hand; it's when um, there's tattoos and stuff on it, and. Um, She's like, yep, yeah, they, they back up what you said. It's this, it's this invitation to, to secret knowledge, but you're still keeping something from me here. We're back where we started, and for some reason, I'm convinced that you know more than you do. Again, as we're going to find out later, Langdon should know that he does know more than he's saying, but at this point, he's still honestly stumped. He's like, oh, I'm looking though. And he's finally like, oh, well, I guess, you know, um... If it's an invitation, maybe it'll be like on the palm of the hand. He's kind of trying to bullshit a He's little saying, bit. Like, I think. Maybe it's written in a note in the palm of the hand, you know, like a map or a letter or a set of directions. Yeah. But maybe it's not. And so Sato takes a pen and slides those fingers open and is like, oh, write again, professor. Or write again, professor. <laughs> And then we cut away to chapter 22, where Catherine Solomon is still pacing in the library of her cinderblock cube in pod five of the, um, oh, what's it called? SNSC. Every time we cut away to Catherine, I want to die a little bit. Catherine is such a boring person. <laughs> uh, so she's having a, a personal flashback to earlier that day. So earlier that day, she received a phone call from a mysterious number 
and uh, turned out to be a Dr. Christopher Abaddon. Um, I'd like saying to pause that, hey, for a moment. Yes, of course. Um, so as soon as this guy is named Abaddon or Abad, I don't really know how it's supposed to be pronounced, but like Catherine Solomon, who's been reading a bunch of like various mystical and ancient texts to do her research. There's no fucking way she believes it's like an actual guy's name because that is <laughs> um, like the angel of death and also the realm <laughs> of the dead. He's the angel in charge of the realm of the dead. Um, uh, <laughs> and let's see. First transcribed in Greek, uh, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, the angel of death as Abaddon and then translated, which in Greek means the destroyer or Apolluon, Apollyon. And the fact that she's just like, okay, yeah, your name is uh, Angel of Death. Love it. Let's 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 get into this chat. <laughs> Sick. Um, I had a friend when I was in the Netherlands who uh, thought John Legend was his real name. So there I've you never go. thought about it. Do you think Stevie Wonder's <laughs> a real name? Probably not, right? No, I don't. What is real name? Do you know Elton John's real name? What is it? Reginald Dwight. <gasps> That's so much better. <laughs> Stevie Wonder is Stevland Hardaway Morris. Might be pronounced Steveland, but it looks like it's spelled Stevland. Stevland. Interesting. Ste- yeah, I would have gone with Stevie Wonder as well, personally. <laughs> Hardaway is fun. Stevie Hardaway? That's kind of cool, but it's no Stevie yeah. Wonder. No, it's no Stevie Wonder. Um, so Dr. Christopher Angel of Death is on the phone. And he's like, listen, I'm your brother's emergency con, or you're your brother's emergency contact, and he missed his appointment today, and uh, just want to see if he's all right. And she's like, you're his doctor? Why, why is he seeing a doctor? Nobody told me that anyone's seeing a doctor. And he's like, oh, I've, say- I've said too much. <laughs> he's, he's really bad at <laughs> I'm HIPAA. I'm so sorry. I, uh, you know doctor patient confidentiality just i just totally forgot and i'm so sorry and you know it was my understanding that all brothers tell all sisters everything about their medical treatment so here i am just blabbing away he does say that peter either intimated or outright said that he had been talking to Catherine about this i mean as we're we're going to learn this is not Uh, true he was never seeing dr Abaddon, but he does he does at least lie sufficiently to explain that and so Catherine freaks out and she's like, oh, what's wrong with my brother? Um, wh- where is he? I'm coming to your office right this second. You're going to tell me where you are. So she's coming over to to, to, to Malach's house. Whoa. Sorry, is that giving something away? <laughs> I mean, we all know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. There's only one master disguise in this book. <laughs> and it's, what's his name? Something disguisey. Oh, What's is this, the is name this of another... the guy in Master Disguise? Oh, the character or the actor? The character. No, I don't know. As I said, I never actually watched the film. It's like something. It's like Linguini. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not joking. I believe you. <laughs> Sorry, we're not moving on until yeah. I, I know what the character's name is. Um, Pistachio Disguisey. Okay, I like that. Um. And so she's up to his big ass house and she's like, this is a doctor's office, even though it's his house. He comes out, he's tall, he's got like thick, lush blonde hair, he's young and um, 
He's got a dark suit and tie, and it looks like he's wearing makeup. His skin is unusually smooth and bronzed. It's lovely. It smells nice. There's incense. Uh, he's like, I work out of my home, which is exactly what happens in Hannibal. Um, <laughs> he has tea steeping. He has tea steeping, which is, as we'll learn later or now, I don't know, a, a Solomon family secret. Um, and so she doesn't sit because her female intuition is kicking in. And I hope I hope you were you didn't think you were going to get this far without some female intuition. No, um, it's making her skin crawl. Um, there's large canvases. There's a large canvas uh, depicting the three graces. This is another weird fact check era error. So okay. uh, the three graces he's talking about a Michael Parks oil and I, I, some, something weird is going on here because like Michael Parks is not that notable an artist. I mean, I like his work. It's like it looks it looks kind of Art Nouveau inspired, but like with something else going on. Mm-hmm. Anyways, his three graces. Um, it says here their nude bodies were spectacularly rendered in vivid colors, but they're not only only one is nude in the painting. Like they're draped, admittedly loosely in gauzy robes, but like they're not. It's not a nude painting necessarily. Sometimes I feel that he can't be this wrong so consistently about such easily look upable things. It's bizarre, and it makes me feel like you know those puzzles where it's like one like the words are misspelled, and then if you put all the like wrong letters in a row, it says something. Oh, Dan Brown's like, actually got some kind of meta puzzle in his book here. Yeah, some kind of like meta puzzle. What if he does? Well, w- wasn't there one where like there were bold le- letters in the upper part? Do you yeah, that? there was something going on in one of those books. Like, I think I think several of those books have come out with some kind of like, you know, what it was that thing we did in the late 2000s that was like the Dark Knight marketing campaign, augmented reality games, alternate reality games. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just feel like if you find all the art faux pas, you can like <laughs> unlock a special. <laughs> I mean, that's just a way to earn yourself a very sporadic <laughs> and weird art history degree. <laughs> Where, you know, like, random American artists who live in Kansas or whatever, and, you know, they're on the internet, but I don't think it's a Wikipedia page. Um, anyway, very strange. Very strange. Okay, so he can tell she's nervous. And he reveals he's, a, her, he's Peter's therapist. And he says, he, sa- he reveals that by saying, it's my business to know when people are nervous. Which, is that... The business of a therapist. <laughs> I doubt it, but I've seen a number of therapists in my time. I'm willing to cover this fault by saying that he's not actually a therapist, so maybe he just is okay. Inexpertly playing his character here. So he says that, "Oh, your brother misled me and told me that you've been, you know, that you've been in the know." uh regarding his visits and she's like oh sorry and he's like oh um also i'm wearing makeup which my wife puts on me because i have uh a dermatological condition so but the reason it's so caked on right now is because she's out of town so it's like my own inexpert application and then he also explains that his hair is a wig because his skin condition has also given him alopecia well, he says all his hair jumped ship. He doesn't say alopecia. <laughs> that was that was my own addition. <laughs> Why isn't he better at makeup? What? Why isn't he better at makeup? 
I think the thing is he actually is good at makeup, but the problem is when you are heavily tattooed, I don't think there's any subtle application of makeup that's going to cover a lot of dark tattoos on your face. Okay, well... Is my assumption here. Okay, I'll take it. Um, so he's in the know in the for the you know he's in the know with regard to the the Solomon family tea uh, tradition. practice tradition. <laughs> you always have a, a a cup of tea waiting for any guests coming over. Which is just it's, it just feels like he's never met uh, like an Arab or south asian or east asian person to be fair in neither his... the solomons nor malach are south or east asian to my knowledge malach has yeah, adopted but, but, a name but i don't think his heritage is but actually they speak they speak as if this tradition is like unique to the solomon family oh yeah <laughs> uh you talk about it, it that just, way that's fair which is plainly not the case okay um I just think for an American audience, you're like, wow, that's sophisticated. Oh, T. <laughs> um, okay, so um, he says, uh, your brother came to me because he trusts me. We have a bond beyond that of normal patient and doctor, which is where I wrote gay. <laughs> um, but it's not that. It's that they're both Masons. <laughs> yeah, of the 33rd degree, no less, the highest degree. I was just saying, he, he explains that, oh, you know, it's not that big a deal. You get the highest degree just by, like, being a millionaire and donating your money to charity. And then the Masons are like, hey, you seem rich and influential. Want to be an extra high-level Mason? Yeah, this piece tells us that he has family money. Do we ever learn where he gets his money from? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I am curious. The the Moloch backstory chapters, which we're not going to get to for, I don't know, two years, are pretty good. <laughs> How are, um, sorry, how are we doing on the three C's? Clock, Covenant, what's the other one? Clock, Catastrophe. Covenant, um, I forget the third one. I need to start watching those videos again, but I think we're doing <laughs> abysmally on them. I mean, like, theoretically, there's a clock in that Malach has told Robert Langdon that everything's happening tonight. But we, but we exactly like we don't know we don't know when the sun rises. So like this could be winter and it could be at like eight a.m. I think we and know like, no, we know we know it's um, like January February because uh, NFL playoffs are happening. How am I supposed to know that? <laughs> I didn't because I had to. I, I sort of knew because I generally know the Super Bowls <laughs> in February. So once I thought about it, but I did look it up before. I was like, oh, like of course. Um, okay. And at some point, I don't have my timeline in front of me, but at some point I did, early in the stages of that, look up average sunrise and sunset time in D.C. <laughs> uh, oh, excellent. I just said, in the past we've had like an actual countdown, like an actual bomb with an actual clock, and if I remember correctly, Inferno will have something similar for us. That um, sounds right. And then there's a contract, like there's a few in that, but like none of them are actually interesting to me. So he's like made promises to reveal things to me, but I'm just like, who care? Sorry, is was Covenant not one of them? I think it's contract. Oh, damn it! Uh, Covenant seems okay. Overly biblical for Dan Brown, a man who hates the fucking Bible. <laughs> okay, so. 
Uh, so he's coming for psychological help, and uh, he was like, oh, I shouldn't tell you uh, because of, you know, I'm a doctor, but he does talk about your research, so maybe it's okay to talk about his medical issues, because those are the same. And it's um, weird here, because Catherine, as a wealthy, like, socially, uh, I don't know, socially expert high-class American of, like, 2009, there's no way that either she has not regularly seen a therapist or that, like, all of her friends don't regularly see therapists and, like, talk about it in at least general senses. But she's like, what is Peter thinking? He told his shrink about my work? And, like, I haven't heard anybody in, like, an upper, like, modern socioeconomic setting ever refer to, like, therapists as shrinks. That's, like... Just not yeah. the way the vernacular works. I don't know. This is not related. I don't know why people call therapists shrinks. I it think comes from I, head I, remember, I don't really know why it's that yeah. either, though. But it's not like, you know, the shrunken heads on the Jungle Cruise ride. I don't think so. It's like your ego's too big and they'll shrink it. Let's this see. <laughs> head shrinker can be a song by the band Oasis, a slang word for a mental health professional. <laughs> Uh, that doesn't tell me why it's called that. I psychologist shrink. It's a a jocular, according to waywardradio.org, a very reputable source. (laughs) It's a jocular (laughs) reference to the ritual practice in certain tribal sites of literally shrinking the heads of one's vanquished enemies. What? Was I conquered by my therapist in war? Oh, you have to listen to this fucking podcast episode to find out. I'm not going to do that. Oh, I'm not going <laughs> to. Oh, We're it doing is, a it podcast. Is, it, it is a way with words, though, so it actually probably is um, oh, okay. correct. I've been on that radio program as a young child. What, I think really? I've talk, I think I've talked about this before. No, you haven't. Um, yeah, so as you know, my family has its annual Christmas sing. Mm-hmm. And one of the songs we sing in that is Angels We've Heard on High. I mean, that's one of the songs we sing, but is that the one that has... Well, yeah, glow and the glow. You sing Gloria, yeah. and then it goes in Excelsis Deo. Uh-huh. And me and my brother were having an argument over how that's supposed to be pronounced. That in Excelsis Deo, and okay. I had th- my I I was kind of applying English pronunciation to it, so I was saying it was in Excelsis Deo, and mm-hmm. my brother was saying in Excelsis Deo because what everyone says, and the. At the time, he was the main person talking on the radio show because I was like four. Um, might have been five, but it was like little. And um, at that point, it was Richard Lederer, and I forget who the co-host was. And they were trying to be, I think, diplomatic and saying that we were both kind of right, um, which is generous because I was not right, um, but Dan was only <laughs> half right. Because in church Latin, it is in excelsis Deo. In a classical Latin pronunciation, it would be in excelsis Deo. Excelsis. Because, you know, Latin C is a hard C sound. Um, no one... But they changed it as the language progressed into kind of like later Latin church pronunciation. So when you're, when you're you know, plunking along at the uh, piano at the Christmas sing, do you sing along? I don't know if you do. I do with songs that I'm familiar enough with that I don't think I'm going to fuck up too bad if I start singing. 
So do you say which one do you sing? What do you sing when you when you sing "Angels We Have Heard on High"? I mean, as a, as a as a as a nod to this episode, and also just because I am um, pig-headed about classical Latin pronunciation, like a real asshole, I sing in Excelsis Deo. I love that. That's what I'm gonna do next year. <laughs> and all your friends are gonna look at me like a, a psycho, but it's worth it. <laughs> um, shrink, shrink. Okay shrink um okay so he's yeah he's like yeah peter sees the 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 potential for some like significant shift in world dynamics when your research revealed and he was trying to like talk through that with me and Catherine's like don't love it but I, I guess um he goes on for some time and he's like what happens when the great mysteries of life are finally revealed what maybe some things are best left unanswered which isn't that like the central conceit of origin uh, I feel as though my brain has blocked out almost everything about origin aside from Spain, Gaudi, um, <laughs> and I hated it. Those are my main <laughs> recollections of that book. Oh, the, Guggenheim, the spider sculpture outside the Guggenheim. Yeah. I never finished that book. Um, oh, it's, it's, if you think this one's a slog, <laughs> that's why I stopped reading. Oh, um, got, um, so when I make tea water, I usually like make two, uh, electric kettles worth so I can pour one into a little thermos so I can have two things of tea and I was opening the thermos and I got hot water on my hands. Oh, are you okay? I'm fine. Okay. We learned that, well, no, we don't. We are lied to that uh, Peter Solomon suffered a mental break. Um, and so Catherine's like, what the hell? Why didn't you tell me this? Like, he tells me everything. What's happening here? Um, and she's and he's like, listen, I can't tell you, but if you promise to be cool, I will tell you what's wrong with your brother and she's like tell me tell me anything and so he's he spins a yarn about uh many many years ago 10 years ago on christmas eve they um got robbed and then their mom the robber wanted something and their mom was murdered and and she died in Catherine's arms and peter solomon like had a gun yeah so i mean an important thing to note here is the man who broke into their home to rob them um wasn't really asking for money he was he was specifically believed that peter solomon had something he was hiding and then peter solomon shot the man dead (laughs) and specifically what he was looking for um abaddon asks and Catherine's like oh i I do remember he was looking for it was very specific but none of us knew what it was talking about and then Abaddon's like, actually, it did make sense to your brother. And he thinks that if he had actually told him what was going on, then maybe your mom would be alive today. And that's why he was feeling such guilt. And that robber, that little girl, that was me. We don't find that out yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Lena's a foreshadowing expert. <laughs> Anyway, they're like, so Ab- 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 Abaddon, Abaddon, Ab- uh, <laughs> I don't know. How, I don't know how to say that. I've looked at the pronunciation of the Pistachio Disguise. I still can't say it. Pistachio Disguise is like, 
Well, you know, it's a, he's delusional, so we're really worried about him, and we don't know where he is, and we are concerned, but it happens. These delusional episodes are not uncommon when they relate to traumatic memories, and Catherine's like, no, he's not delusional, come on. Um, and then Pistachio's like, well, what if I told you <laughs> that here in Washington, D.C.? Anyway, so we're told that, like, uh, I don't know how to say it because it's all lies. Yeah, he's basically saying that um, he got some like some some hot tip from Peter Solomon about what he said he was hiding, and maybe we can we can crack this mystery together of where Peter is if we work together here. Uh, more tea, and she's like, "Spill it, sis." Yeah. Um, okay, chapter twenty three on the find palm out of what that tattoo is. It says I I I X. Eight eight five, except the eight the the top. Okay, so <laughs> the I I I X are normal, I guess. Except they look kind of like like askew, askew, and then the eight eight five are like uh, like they would be on uh like a an alarm clock. Except the top square is larger than the smaller square. The, um, sorry, is larger than the square on the bottom. That's exactly which right. Which would imply. Which would imply fuckery, but yeah, okay, we'll but move on. We've got a lot to get through before anyone else makes this realization here. <laughs> so first Anderson's like, ah, oh, that first part's a Roman numeral. And then Langdon's like, actually, um, IIIX is not a Roman numeral. It, it, you'd think it would be seven, but seven's actually VII. There is no IIIX. And... Um, then Sato's like, what about the rest of it? Because apparently her eyes can't process that it says 885, but like maybe weird. And so Langdon's like, it looks like it says 885 in Arabic numbers. And then Anderson's like, Arabic? Look, <gasps> normal numbers to me. God. Which you will be shocked, uh, listeners. Provides Langdon the room to go off a little spiel about how our numbers are in fact Arabic numerals. And he gives us a paragraph about the scientific advances made by early Middle Eastern cultures, which, which are all forgotten by the time Origin comes ar- around, by the way. And also, <laughs> I'd like to say that, like, you know, the scientific advances of early Middle Eastern cultures are not the same as the advances made by the Arabs, you know, at uh, the yeah. height of their scientific peak. So if you're going to say middle, early Middle Eastern cultures, I immediately think you were talking about like, the Sumerians and the Babylonians and shit not like the Abbasids and the Umayyads. Right. I mean, there was an Islamic golden age and it's a very specific people. So to say like the middle, early middle Eastern, like it's like saying the early early European peoples. (laughs) Like, (laughs) cause like, you know, in, in, in the scheme of early to modern, the, the height of, you know, the Muslim golden age is like, closer to the kind of medieval early modern sort mm-hmm. of place than it is to like ancient times whatever you're wrong dan brown <laughs> uh so oh he calls the the kind of writing rectilinear so do that what you will so they might not be numbers they may be runic <sighs> all right forest i know you know more about this than i do so yeah so 
Langdon says that runic alphabets are composed solely of straight lines. Their letters are called runes and were often used for carving in stone because curves were too difficult to chisel. That is like not totally incorrect. Like specifically runic alphabets are those that derive from, you know, the, uh, a specific Germanic alphabet that was itself adapted from the Roman alphabet in like the second or third century, uh, CE. And so a bunch of this is derived from this. Langdon says his expertise extended only to the most rudimentary runic, alph- runic alphabet, Futhark, a third century Teutonic system, which like no one says it's, no one says I know Futhark. You say I'm familiar with the elder Futhark, <laughs> which is the in- earliest one that we're aware of. And he says, to be honest, I'm not even sure there's a runes. You need to ask a specialist. There are dozens of forms, Helsinga, Manx, the dotted Stungnar. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like there's no way that, that langdon not a rune expert is gonna be able to pull those off the top of his head but there's also no fucking way that he's going to look at that 885 thing and think ah those are runes because like reader you know what runes look like you've 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 seen them on um tattooed on white supremacists and things like this you're fam- <laughs> you're familiar with the forms of letters um they don't look like this <laughs> Um, you've seen them on the maps in the front of the Hobbit. <laughs> you, you see them around. It's very frustrating. You're right. I'm very sorry. And like, also the most of the earliest runes we have, some of them are carved into stone, some are carved into wood. And like, he says that they couldn't carve curves. Like, almost every single runic alphabet I'm familiar with does, in fact, have at least one or two curved um, lines. But that is the hypothesis of why they're straight. It's like, fair enough, Dan. But it's just, like, annoying to say this is, it's almost runic. Because it's not. <laughs> okay. Um, so Peter Solomon is a mason. And what's what's her name? Sato is like, well, runic art alphabets are used in stone. And masons work with stone. Boosh. So fucking dumb. <laughs> <laughs> stupid is this, is this um, the beginning of your asmr career let's go for yeah. it yeah and so then langdon in just an incredible bout of um self-awareness <laughs> rolls his eyes and he's like google's not a synonym for research in these days of massive worldwide keyword searches it seems like everything was wait linked can we give to- it some some context really quick yeah because because sato says I mention this only because when I asked my office to search for a connection between the Hand of Mysteries and Peter Solomon, their search turned one link in particular. And then Langdon's like, ugh, Google is not a synonym for research. But nobody mentioned Google, and it's the CIA. And, like, you would think they would know how to research things because they're the CIA. They're the police for the CIA. Yeah, but they're so, symbologists. Like, <laughs> And he gives one in the opening to be like, actually, you know, everyone, if you search for anything like uh, vaguely occult, your search is going to bring up the Masons. And of course, anything that was the Masons is going to bring up Peter Solomon because he's a Mason. But like, um, you know, Sato's now like, well, you know, you know, this mystery shit does sound very Masonic. And then Langdon is like, it does. And it also sounds very Rosicrucian, Kabbalistic, Alumbradian, and any number of other esoteric groups. A little earlier, he says, you know, on the internet, we live in a society. And if you search for anything, like all kinds of crazy links, like crop up. But like, is this not how he writes his books? 
It's exactly how he writes his books, which just is just googling well, like it's not always clear to me. That he George Washington, and because <laughs> like part of part of the thing that's so wild about this is, I think maybe even starting with the Da Vinci Code for some of that, like he he was notable enough that he would like travel to these places to go like travel around and get the ideas for his wild narratives. And so like, I'm sure for this book, he spent a lot of time around DC, like wandering around and probably talked to a Mason or two and probably like, you know, went to all these places and had the access cause he was, he wrote the Da Vinci code. And so he could probably get into like all these cool places. And this is the shit he comes up with. There's so much that's wasted on this man. Yeah. <laughs> and then Sato is just like, well, you know, the Masons are pretty fucking fishy. And then Langdon's like, you know, I spend more time defending the fucking Masons than anybody. Um, you know, they're, they're built on, uh, if you want to know about them, talk to a Mason, you can trust them, even though you don't think you can, because their whole philosophy is on honesty and integrity. Uh, they're one of the most trustworthy people you could ever have to meet, just like the Mormons. That's why they'll work for the FBI. Um, and then Sato is very cryptic here and says she's seen persuasive evidence to the contrary and that makes Langdon dislike her not because she's a powerful woman but because she doesn't like the Masons okay well anyway they keep they keep bantering for so long and he uh, he it's just that he's so dumb and he's like listen none of it's real and nothing is anything and so i will not contribute whatsoever and she's like okay but the facts are that i mean like aside from any ulterior motive that sato might have thank you for spoiling it for us i don't know what her Um, i don't know what her ulterior motive is i just know everything she's, she's written as like something else is going on with this woman and it's just like you came here and are in the middle of a mystery and this is your third mystery sir so like get when your friend is like missing and his hand is gone so like get with the program and start brain blasting a little bit please well he sort of does but just like in the most delayed way possible here because sato is like listen we're at an impasse the person we're dealing with here said that solomon chose you specifically for a reason which she said a million times by now but Langdon's finally like, shit, chose me for a reason. Um, he looked down <laughs> at the ring on Solomon's finger and is like, oh, this triggers a memory for me. Langdon gasped, recalling the eerie whisper of Peter's captor. It really hasn't dawned on you yet, has it? Why you were chosen. Now, in one terrifying moment, Langdon's thoughts tapped into focus and the fog lifted. All at once, his purpose was crystal clear. And maybe in an effort to like distract you from how fucking stupid this is about to be, Dan Brown chooses this moment to flash away to Catherine Solomon, but we're going to come back to this, so don't lose track of this thread in your mind. Okay, I will not. I um, I've I've been sewing a lot of masks uh, due to the apocalypse, and um, so I've been watching a lot of Doctor House MD while I do that because it's like a garbage show that you can kind of just put on in the background, and it's pretty formulaic. That's what I've been doing with Forge and um, Fire. What is that? Uh, Lena, it's the greatest show of all time. Uh, it's <laughs> you on. Keep telling me that <laughs> it's on. It's it's on the History Channel. It's on TV. It's on History, and uh, every episode they get four, almost always four guys, 
and they come into the forge and there's three judges um there's oh oh, i thought you said sorry i thought you said fortune fire not for i know i know forged in fire okay we can stop here um my point about house was that you know how he'll be like I don't know. He'll see like a faucet drip and he'll be like, oh, drip. She must have Post whatever drip. very rare. <laughs> um, he did the same thing here, but it's just dumber. He's just like, I was brought here for a reason. Well, because like, <gasps> it's like the 15th time that something should have triggered this memory for him. <laughs> Especially once we get the memory. It's like a big memory. It happened like six hours before this. <laughs> um, okay, so we're back at the... Um, oh, no, no, no. Uh, go ahead. I don't know. Yeah, Malach is driving his limo um, south on Suitland Parkway. And, and he hears a distinctive vibration... Or he, Yes, a distinctive mm-hmm. vibration on the seat beside him. Which is Peter Solomon's iPhone, which he... Um, Can we... I want to talk about that, if that's okay. The distinctive vibration? Yeah. Go for it. What? So, what? What? It's a phone. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't explain to you. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's like one of those things. I don't know if if the 2009 iPhones did this. I don't even know if current iPhones can do this. But, like, I know on one of my old flip phones, you could, like, change the vibration vibration setting to have, like, a pattern of vibrations. Okay. You know, so it's like you don't have a ringtone because you don't want to ring ever, but like you want to have a different vibration pattern for a call versus a text when text goes like, and when it's a call, it goes like, that kind of thing. Okay, fair. I just want to. It's just that I know that he just felt like he needed an adjective before vibration. Yeah, and he chose distinctive. I don't don't want to defend Dan too much here. Okay, so his, Peter Solomon's phone had proven a powerful tool today. Um, and uh, Catherine's on the ringer, on the blower. One second. Uh, this is going to come back in a second. But the visual caller ID now displayed the image of an attractive middle-aged woman with long black hair. So just keep in mind mm-hmm. that Peter Solomon is able to use, uh, he's able to program in someone's picture into the contact. Okay, thank you. Um, he's telling us, like, I lured this woman into my home earlier, but I had learned something from her as well. Haha. <laughs> it earned her um, a couple extra hours of life. So he's gonna, I don't know, continue to manipulate this woman. Yeah, I mean, he, he, so he's learned that all of her research is, in fact, only in one location in her lab. And so he's like, I gotta destroy it, which means I had to leave her alive so I could get access to the lab. Um, and so, you know, she leaves a message on Solomon's phone. It's like, oh, I'm worried about you. I talked to Dr. Abaddon. Like, call me. And more he continues like driving Dr. towards. a bad one. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I said more like Dr. A bad one. Exactly. Um, he, he continues driving towards what we learned is the SMSC. And he's like, ah, you think it's secure in there, but I know someone's going to open the door for me. Sick. Okay, chapter 24. <laughs> the revelation has crashed over Langdon like a wave as far as why he's here in chapter 20 and 4. <laughs> <laughs> On page 
101. <laughs> 4 and 20 book. blackbirds baked in a pie. 4 and 20 chapters <laughs> till Langdon remembers why. <laughs> um, that's so familiar to me. I why mean, 4 and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie is like the old King Cole. Wait, was it, what was it old King Cole? Uh, sing a song of sixpence, sing a song of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie, when the pie did whistle, shit. I don't know, it's a rhyme. I remember it, all of a sudden. It wa- the revelation has crashed over me like a wave. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, instead of being like, I can help now, he's like, I need to leave, I need to go home. I need to leave, I, I can't let anyone know why I'm here. Um so he flashes back to so, when he's swimming laps in the pool, and then he goes into the classroom and smells. What the- many years ago, though? Yes. Yeah? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, and he walks into his classroom, and there waiting for him is an elegant gentleman with an aquiline face and a regal gray eyes. Peter. Yeah, Peter's like, sorry, oh, good morning. I don't know what that voice was. Uh, <laughs> And What's this Yale blue blood doing on the crimson campus before dawn? It's a covert mission behind enemy lines, Solomon said. He motioned to Langdon's trim waistline. Laps are paying off. You're in good shape. My note here says Langdon is so hot! Exclamation point. Like this is, I've 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 seen motion pictures that begin like this. Sure. And um, they don't generally continue like this. So, um, you know, Peter's saying, oh, I'm on a little business trip, but I have to ask you a favor. And then he's like, wow, you've never asked me for a favor before. I will absolutely do one. And then we find what out he actually has... What can a simple college asked... professor do for the man who had everything? But we also Just find out... simple... Oh, go ahead. We find out that he has done him a favor before because when Solomon's like, I want you to look after something, Langdon's like, not Hercules, your dog, I hope, because... Hercules uh, chewed up a vellum hand calligraphed illuminated Bible from the 1600s when I was taking care of him last time that I just had laying around the house where a dog could get it because I'm a huge shithead. Again, he has stolen artifacts everywhere in his house. Yeah. And then, you know, Peter is a funny joke. He's like, you know, I'm searching for a replacement. And Langdon's like, ah, you know, no worries. I'm glad Hercules got a taste of religion. This is the same man after a dog who ate his 16th or 17th century Bible who's um, sat in a town car. I was like, this is how the other half lives. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> so Peter's like, here, here's the thing that you need to hold on to for me. I inherited it. From my the first ever Solomon, and <laughs> and Langdon's like, why not put it in a safety deposit box? Like, in half the doesn't your family have stock in half the banks in America? Okay, do you have something to say about this? Because I do. I don't understand finance, so no. If you have like an investment account with a firm that you know takes your money and invests it and manages it then you too have stock in half the banks in America. That's the way... Do banks not offer like stock, separate stock, stock shares? They do, right. But if you are... If you have... A, so, oh, like if you have... Example, like if your money is invested in a fund, then that fund is going to have banks yeah. in it? And if you have a Roth IRA or a 401k, your money is probably invested in a fund. And so... You probably... Like, it doesn't... It's just so silly to be like, your family has stock in half the banks in America. Why not just use a safety deposit box? 
What? <laughs> a, anyone could use a safety deposit box. B, having stock in half the banks in America is a measure of like a middle class to upper middle class amount of wealth, but not like a Solomon amount of wealth. Well, and also having stock. Like a, a, a significant voting interest's worth of stock in the major banks. That's not what he said. <laughs> it felt implied to me. <laughs> He said, first of all, a voting interest is one share. So I think I said the word significant. A significant voting interest? Oh, like an actual yes, thing that could like, affect things. The point being, he didn't say that. He said, doesn't your family have <laughs> stock in half the banks in America? Why not put it in a safety deposit box? As if having stock, even if you had, like, would that naturally give you access to a safety deposit box? I don't think so. Probably not. It's none of this adds up. It's all very stupid. It's ridiculous. Okay. He has a little box. Um, it's a cube, like three inches. Is, this, is a cube three inches square? It's a cube three inches cube. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, I know what he meant. Wait, I hate this. Wait, <laughs> that's very upsetting. Um, and it's wrapped in pack and paper and tied with twine. It's the it's the sorcerer's stone. It's it's heavy, <laughs> and um, it has it's it has a wax seal that is embossed with the same. Uh, it looks like it was embossed with you know Solomon's mason ring, and he's like, Williams like this is like some corny shit, man. Sealing this with your ring, and Solomon's like, ah, oh, this is I didn't seal this. This is my great grandfather almost a century ago with with this same ring, and then Lance's like, no one's opened in that whole fucking time. So I was like, it's not time yet. Time for what? I don't know. And then he's like, just keeps it mysterious. He's like, listen, don't ask. The less just you know, keep the better. The package safe. I don't know how many years ago this was, but since we've met Robert Langdon, he's like regularly out of the house, letting dogs destroy his stuff, <laughs> um, being like murdered by various zealots. <laughs> so he just doesn't seem like the right person to keep something valuable with. He also doesn't have any family or anyone like consistent in his life because he keeps having these father figures that live across you know the globe and then they die i think this episode um, might have been prior to angels and demons has been how i'm just saying if, if anything happened to robert langdon what happens to his estate like who are his heirs and who gets the box <laughs> that's a good question um but he's never gonna die so it's okay okay <laughs> So, oh God, Langdon, like, like maybe this is like a, some ploy that he's like, trying to intrigue me to join the Masons, which I won't join because if I want to teach about them, then I can't be a member when I'd be sworn to secrecy. And he says it had been for the same reason that Socrates had refused to formally participate in the Eleusinian Mysteries, which was one of the ancient mystery cult things. And I did an embarrassing amount of Googling for this. And I could find nothing that suggested that Socrates refused to participate in the Eleusinian mysteries for any like stated reason, much less that it meant he wouldn't be able to teach. All right. Well, anyway, he's like, why not give it to one of your Masonic brothers? And he's like, don't worry. It's safer with you. And please don't let the size of this package fool you. Yeah. I've also heard, um, he says, please don't let the size of the package fool you. If what my father told me is correct, it contains something of substantial fat power. I've also seen, um, films and stuff like that <laughs> uh he paused and said a talisman of sorts and then Langdon's like you know peter talisman's not out of vogue in the middle ages which is like not true 
he said, because he says traditionally talismans were used for bringing luck, warding off evil spirits, or aiding ancient rituals. And like people still have like lucky coins or rabbit's feet and monkey's paws, not monkey's paws. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow is still selling rose quartz on her website. Yeah, so. no, talismans are still with us. <laughs> He's like, this is why I love you. You don't believe anything I say. That's great. <laughs> Just like a good love friend. you, <laughs> love you, son. <laughs> this chapter is so long. <laughs> I know. Um. Anyway, so Lionel's memorialist. He took he took this he took this package, and then um, Langdon had forgotten all about it after he like stared at it all that morning before deciding just like, ah, I guess Peter's weird and locked it away. And then this morning, he got a call from the man with the southern accent, whom we recall from a million chapters ago, um, <laughs> who invited him to DC, and he was like, "Oh, Professor, I almost forgot. Uh, there's one more thing, Mister Solomon requested." Um, he said, please ask Robert to bring the small sealed package I gave him many years ago. Does this make sense to you? And then Langdon's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what that is. Uh, for sure I'll bring that. And so this morning, like this morning, before he got on the plane to D.C., Robert Langdon had to go to his wall safe where he left this thing, open it, retrieve it, put it in his duffel bag after a specific request <laughs> from Peter Solomon for this thing that he knew was like super fucking secret. And this whole time when everyone's like, you know, Peter had like some secret shit he left with you. Like, why do you think you're here? He's like, I don't fucking know. I don't get it. And it took him until like <laughs> half an hour of interrogation before he felt like, oh my God, that super secret box that he specifically asked me to bring. Maybe, maybe that half was an it. Hour, half an hour of interrogation and also like many hours of my life in this book. Like how Not st- many, a couple, which is too many. <laughs> how stupid is this man? He's very, first of all, I would love to see like a Jacob's Ladder scenario where we learn that he's like, you know, delusional and is waking up from a dream and like, because symbologist is not a job. And so they're like, oh, that's Bobby. He thinks he's some kind of a symbologist, but he just keeps scrawling on the walls with crayon. That's what I would like to see. So, like, uh, you always say that symbologist is not a job. And I want to push back on that slightly in that like, there's okay. a bunch of academic disciplines that like shouldn't be jobs that are like jobs you know i say shouldn't be like i mean i'm glad they are jobs like i'm glad you can be a papyrologist and study papyruses i'm glad that someone can be a um you know one of those special kinds of archaeologists who's like specifically knows about animal bones and they call you in to be like yeah we found these bones these animal bones and they like lick it like yeah this is an animal bone all right like i'm (laughs) I'm glad that we have those people no same i agree i and so i'm you know i bet somewhere in the world there is someone who's probably several people who are like actually symbologists they don't do this i love and right i love and respect people who have like esoteric and extremely specific history related jobs that makes me very happy and we really need them but Robert Langdon's job does not exist, which is like general knowledge of many symbols in almost no depth, but sometimes excruciating depth. <laughs> like, I like this job doesn't exist, and I don't no, mean the, like treasure hunter. The, the but job, I, of, the, the job of, of spouting off whatever like dumb shit. You know who Dan Brown <laughs> reminds me of? Dan Brown or Robert Langdon? Dan Brown. Okay. No, who? Whomst? I'm, a, I'm, I'm maybe a little wrong here, but like, he seems like an Elon Musk figure where he like gets fixated on one thing and decides he's going to like read a couple of Wikipedia articles and then just like pretend he's an expert about it. Except that instead of uh, channeling this through like Twitter and forming a company about it, 
he channels this through <laughs> making Robert Langdon also an expert in this thing. So like Elon Musk is like, ah, um, I'm going to buy these tunneling machines and then just run them at unsafe speeds and say that I've innovated tunneling technology um, and forms <laughs> the boring company. And then Dan Brown is like, ah, I'm going, I, I wanted this tour of the Capitol and was like, wow, this is a weird painting of George Washington. I'm going to like uh, skim a few Wikipedia articles and then write a Robert Langdon book about it. It's the same, same thing. It's dilettantism. It's the same thing. Yeah. Dilettantism. Now that's a job I'm interested in. God. Elon Musk is so useless. What? What a useless, what a useless man Elon Musk is. <laughs> God, he sucks so much. <laughs> What does he do beside hoard wealth and get Grimes pregnant? Excuse me. He sent that hospital several CPAP machines. <laughs> I wish you could have heard how upset my mom was when she learned about that. I like, how, so I like how no news organization actually said, like, these are clearly pictures of CPAP machines. Just like some people on Twitter who are like, this is not a ventilator. <laughs> <laughs> And you can just like follow the links to the company's website and be like, yeah, that's, that's not the ventilator. <laughs> I mean, did he like, okay, uh, brief tangent. So did, so did he personally like press order and then, but he has employees. Yeah. I don't, right? I don't think he personally, so was, I don't think he personally did anything. And then like also one of my favorite things was like, you know, specifically he ordered like 1,798 of them or something. And some like went to the company's website and did the math and was like, yeah, you know, um, if you just multiply this unit price by the exact number of units you ordered, it comes out to almost exactly $1 million. So he just told someone to buy $1 million worth of ventilators <laughs> and they came in with like 1,278 CPAP machines. <laughs> oh God. But he did rescue okay. that soccer team <laughs> and unveil that horrible team? man. <laughs> all right um uh, chapter five and 20 uh should we do men to avoid here what should we do wait are we already haven't we already oh no we haven't dived into it let's 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 get through chapter five and 20 and then bust out the men to avoid okay trish dunn is you know and just awestruck by the woman of her dreams <laughs> Because there are search spider results that are materializing on the plasma wall before her. Does that, that's a screen? That's what we're talking about with yeah, regard to plasma wall here? I think she's got some kind of multi-monitor set up. She's like a Twitch streamer. <laughs> and so the, the spider brought up like several results. And she's like, you know, some of these are definitely like not good. Like look at the file size. This motherfucker is like 15 terabytes. This is just an archive of everything on the internet. So of course it has all your search terms in it. There's not, not together. Um, and then Catherine points at one towards the top. It's like, how about that one? And Trisha's like, oh my God, my smart, sexy little girl. Yes, that is the only one that is under 15 terabytes. It's in fact like 10 <laughs> megabytes. It's our only, it's, it can't be more than a page or two. She doesn't actually have the file size. I'm just um, interpreting. Yeah, and Catherine hits her with a, 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 an intense tone and is like, "Open it." <laughs> and um, they couldn't do it because it's redacted, like it's on Google Books. Yeah. And Trish is like, "What are they talking about? Ancient portal, engraved symbol on? What's a symbol on?" Uh, let me hold it down on this and bring it up in the dictionary. <laughs> Uh, no definition found. Let me pull up my 
college subscription to the Oxford English Dictionary. One moment. <laughs> Simmons Library, databases. Uh, While you're doing that, I'll move forward. Um, so Catherine's like, I need to know who wrote this. I need to see the rest of it. But they can't trace the, I, the IP address. They can't unmask it. And they run a like little ping pong thing to figure out where it came from. And it got blocked which she's like what the hell you can't block a tracer wait there's a name for the tracer oh it's a trace root whatever and her ping had hit a network device that swallowed it rather than bouncing it back um and this happens a few times and so she's like maybe we'll just run a who is search and am i i don't know it's just not interesting at all she's just like uh, who has this document? And it doesn't tell her. It's like the IP address does not exist. And Catherine's like, of course it exists. And she's like, yeah, I mean, yes, but I don't know what to tell you. Like, there's... <sighs> yeah, can't, she can't find it. Yeah, she can't find it. She's like, you know what I can do, though? I can call Jabba the Hut, and he can find it for us. Yeah, um, uh, before we get to that in a second here... Um, so Symbolon is not in the Oxford English Dictionary, but it does pop up in the Oxford Classical Dictionary. Um, okay. Where it's Symbolon, originally a physical object intended as a material indication of identification or agreement, what may have begun as a private practice as a reminder of Xenia, which I think is ritualized friendship, uh, matching tallies with individuals. Uh, can have wider ramifications... Uh, it's like an agreement or contract or a symbol of the agreement or contract, I think. But mostly it's not a real word. Sick. Anyways, yeah, Trish is going <laughs> to call a hacker she knows. And she's like, yeah, there's this guy. She's like, ugh, I'll just read it. It's, ugh, it's so, ugh. <laughs> Trish was not sure what made her more uncomfortable. Helping Catherine Solomon hire a hacker... That she suggested. Wait, uh, before or, before she uh, says this, she does she does oh. say that she does she does say she knows this guy. Uh, he's a good guy. I trust him. He is freelance. And then she says this next thing. Yeah, she says. Should I go back to what I was reading? Mm-hmm. Trish was not sure what made her more uncomfortable: helping Catherine Solomon hire a hacker, or calling a guy who probably still found it impossible to believe a pudgy redheaded meta systems analyst would rebuff his romantic advances. Again, like two paragraphs ago, she said, oh, he's a really good guy. And now she's like, actually, like, uh, you know, he wouldn't take no for an answer and like thought I was like some kind of stuck up bitch for not dating him because I'm like a little pudgy. But he's a good guy, you know. <laughs> uh, done. So Catherine gets a message meanwhile, uh, and it's a text message from Peter Solomon for us. What's going on here? I don't know. I, I mean, we, I guess we know his phone is in the possession of um, Malach. So we can, we can piece, piece <laughs> we do this <know>. together. <laughs> we do know that. Um, she leaves the the office and she's like freaking out because Peter Solomon just sent his first ever text message. Also, wait, she gets cell service inside her like mm-hmm. <laughs> lead line bunker where thought energy can't get in. Oh, God damn it. Can you believe? Can you believe? It's so awful. Okay. But yeah, so so again, like she 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 says like, oh my god, alert the press. Um, Peter Solomon sent his first text message, and like we know that Peter Solomon 
is savvy enough for this iPhone to put in like picture ID for the caller ID and you can't fucking figure out a text message? I don't think Ansa so. Ansa said a distinctive uh, vibration. Yeah, very dumb. Well, he might just not be a texter. I have friends who aren't texters. They would prefer to call. And so <laughs> I would think, so, I know, but I would think that like Catherine, knowing that her, her I almost said husband, her brother is tech savvy enough to figure this out. Like, to know that her picture is on the ID and et cetera, and that he prefers not to send text messages. Like, wouldn't that set off alarm bells immediately? Yeah, I mean, I'm willing to give her a little bit of benefit of the doubt on not being overly alarmist because, you know, you're trying to convince yourself nothing's actually wrong and that everything's going to be fine. Um, and it's, it's never your instinct that like, oh, my God, uh, this, is, this is the beginning of some kind of, like, major crisis in my life. Like for Langan, it's too late. He he should be past this point of realizing that. Like he knows that some weird ass shit's going on. But for Catherine, this is still just like an unusual, but like not life threatening evening, or so she thinks. But it's been a lot of weird stuff in like a very short amount of time. First, her brother does not show up to their meeting, which he's never done before in like years and years. Yeah. And then apparently he's been he has he's been seeing a doctor that she's never heard of and talking about. Um, her research, which he never does, and then he is texting. Like it just doesn't add up. Like, and oh, and the doctor says he had a breakdown, <laughs> which he's never done. So like, it's all it's all bonkers. Like, we know our friends and we know our our family. This and is true. like, just like if I tweeted something in praise of Dan Brown, I'm sure you'd call the police. <laughs> you know, yeah, like it's fair. But okay. she doesn't have that Moving thought. Moving on. Um, <laughs> so we cut away to a strip mall parking lot. Yeah, across the street from the SMSC where Malach is looking at a church. And I, I, I have a street view over here. And currently there is a church in the strip mall across the street. And not, it's not the Lord's House of Glory like it says here, but like could have been back then. Church is rebrand. You don't know. What's less likely is that in the window, Malach sees the doctrinal statement, which is just like taken from the Nicene Creed. We believe that Jesus Christ was begotten by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and is both true man and God. And like, I just don't know of any like strip mall churches that would put part of the Nicene Creed like prominently visible in their window. It doesn't seem like normal practice to me. I don't know about that, but I took issue with the next part here where he says, yes, Jesus is indeed both man and God, but a virgin birth is not the prerequisite for divinity. That is not how it happens. And this was not, the the statement was not a recipe. Like, that's true. It didn't say like, Jesus was divine. And it's because of the following three things. Yeah, no, there's two, two <laughs> thoughts presented. We believe he's both man and God. We believe he was begotten. I mean, this is why it, usually in the recitation of the Nicene Creed, like you start most sentences off with, we believe this thing. We also believe this thing. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. one is not necessarily a consequence of the other. They're just like separate things you believe. You think Malach knew this. I don't know. And yet, I don't know. Okay. And so he gets... He gets um, a call on his own Dr. Abaddon phone. And, and he goes, this is Dr. Abaddon. Because he uh, t- tunes his voice deeper. As you which do. makes me believe has, <laughs> it makes me believe he has like a silly and high-pitched voice. 
He might, but I don't know. Like, like a Matthew Broderick. I think he's got like a normal voice, and then like when he's Doctor Abaddon, he comes down here a little bit to be you know more stentorian and and authoritative. But like normally he's like some <laughs> first. Rest, you like, think you're crazy, then they fight you, then you rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> Back at it, baby. <laughs> uh, I mean, I hope I hope his normal voice is lower than what I'm speaking as right now because like this is not a Moloch voice, but. Um, you know, I think I think maybe maybe he can have a higher voice than his Doctor Bad voice without it being like a, a hilarious falsetto. <laughs> what if it was a Gilbert Gottfried? Um, I would not like that. <laughs> that would not be good for me. <laughs> is uh the villain in uh, National Treasure? Is that Sean Bean? I believe it is. His voice is low. Anyway. <laughs> Um, <laughs> he always dies and everything. That's, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Catherine's on the phone, and uh, she's like, "Yeah, he's on his way to the lab, and he wants you to come to the lab. So come to the lab. See you soon." Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, I'm I'm like right across the street." It turns out he says he's like ten minutes away, but he is right across <laughs> the street. Um, you know, because he's he's the one that. Uh, sent the text that says got your messages all's fine busy day forgot appointment with dr abaddon sorry not to mention him sooner long story am headed to lab now if available have dr abaddon join us inside i trust him fully and i have much to tell you both which is almost him fully (laughs) which is almost perfect boomer texting style except for that last sentence which is like too many clauses in one sentence for boomer texting I agree. There's not, also not enough ellipses for boomer texting. Oh my god, um, the ellipses are terrifying. There is so I mean, a few people have written articles on this, but there's a linguist. Uh, I think it's Lauren Ganway. No, it's um, shit. It's the other host of Lingthusiasm, I think. Um, okay. And she has a whole book called "Because Internet," which is a study of like internet linguistics, and it goes in, it goes into the um, ellipsis boomer texting thing. And like traces it back to some degree, um, like people in postcards used to do the same kind of ellipsis at the end of a thing if they were like, uh, instead of instead of the way that young people interpret it, which is like threatening that like something portentous is coming up here, which is how I always interpret it. And I had like a full on like fight with my mom about it one time, um, <laughs> where I was like, when you do this, the reason that you can send me a text with an ellipsis and I will call you instantly is because I'm positive you're <laughs> furious at me, and I just want to get yeah, it over. Yeah, my dad will send me. And she's like, no, it's just like soft and it's like softer than a period. <laughs> My dad will send me like Lena dot 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 call back period. Yes. And I'm like, um, <laughs> oh, or once I asked my dad to like pay the rent for me when I was living in Berkeley and not paying my own rent. And he sent me like dot dot dot. It is handled dot dot <laughs> like exclamation point. And I was like, oh, <laughs> did you kill my landlord? <laughs> <laughs> have you heard the song kill my landlord by the coup haven't i'll look it up later it's a good song. everything it's about them is very good. timely their best song is called guillotine but uh kill my landlord is a really good one <laughs> uh, anyways Catherine texts back you know peter's had capitalization Catherine's does not peter congrats on the text relieved you're okay spoke to dr a and he's coming to lap see you shortly dash k which like again perfect boomer texting where you sign your text <laughs> That gives me like Gen X 
professor sent from my iPhone energy. Yeah, that, that I I always delete sent from my iPhone, but I haven't actually taken out of my iPhone signature. I just always, always, always delete it. <laughs> uh, don't know if I've done that or not. I should probably look in on that. Um, okay, so Malach is like, hell yeah, baby, I'm in. And he's like, I'm going to kill her research, and then I'm going to kill her. It's a good night here in Washington, D.C., by the Lord's house of glory. Yeah, and he That's runs over doing. Peter Solomon's iPhone, so that way it won't be traced anymore, because its usefulness uh, is over yeah. now. Now it's time for okay. some men to avoid. Oh, which finally, I, do, something different. Do you have the message I sent to you earlier? I do, yeah. Good news, because I've already forgotten what they all are. All right, excellent. And you said you said as much. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Men to avoid number one for this week, or I don't know what number we're actually at. I have no idea. That's why um, number one through six. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So you're not at your parents' house. So like, where? How? Did you buy another copy of this book? No, I'm still using the Kindle. Oh no, I I, I brought I brought Men to Avoid with me to Boston. Oh, amazing. Okay. All right, number one, men who watch the pregame show. I agree with him on this. Um, sports, pregames, and postgame shows are the single most boring thing a human being can watch. I've never seen them. Have you ever been, have you, have you ever had to watch the Super Bowl? Uh, I, yes. Like, I remember having seen a Super Bowl. Do you know? But I don't remember being engaged. Do you know, like, at, at halftime, both before and after the performer plays, and there's, like, a bunch of guys sitting around a big kind of semicircular desk, and, like, they're all ex-football players. They'll have these weird, oversized, strangely colored velvet suits and, like, five-foot-wide ties. Oh, yeah, yeah. Charles Charles Barkley is, is there, yeah, usually. Yeah, yeah. And then they, okay. like, kind of talk for a long time. There's, like, some weird graphics, but, like, no one's saying anything useful. It's like, yep, you know, I think what's going to happen is is, is they got to move the ball forward and score a touchdown. And the other guy's like, yep, that sure is they got to do. But how are they going to do it when the other team, what they got to do to stop them is play better defense and get some guys out there to tackle the guys <laughs> with the football. It's like, uh, yes, that is correct. <laughs> and, like, every now and again, someone will say something actually insightful and, like, teach you something about the sport that's happening. But almost never. Um, the best sports viewing thing i've ever had my uncle used to play professional football and coached high school football for a million years mm-hmm. um and he was over one time we were watching a football game and you know he was between yelling at the screen because the chiefs were losing or whatever um he would say like actually incisive things about, like not just fix your defense but say like how they should fix their defense and i was like oh they're like is a real strategy and thought that goes into this thing beyond just whatever the fuck the announcers are saying. Yeah. Uh, but sports pregame shows almost never give you that in my experience. So you, you, you've given us an answer as to why pregame shows suck, but like, what is it about men who watch the pregame show? Is it just that they have bad taste? It's one, it's, it's, it's one thing to have it on in the background where it's just like white noise, but to be like actually watching it. I think is an indication of something like deeply wrong with that person as a human being. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Men who wear tank tops. I disagree on this one. I mean, I, I, I understand where he's coming from, um, but I don't think it's a problem. Uh, this is like the satchel thing. 
Where like, it can be an indicator. Like, it, it's like, some men in tank tops are douchebags, but all douchebags wear tank tops. Like... I feel like... It, I guess it depends. Like, it, are we talking about like, like an undershirt tank top? Like, uh, Nicolas Cage and Moonstruck? In which case, thank you very much. I appreciate that tank top. I think, don't I think, love that I, movie. I think we're talking about, like, actually, like, not necessarily undershirt, like, out in public. Like, the shirt you're wearing out is a tank top. Right. I... Is this... Are these, like, the ones that are, like, cool story, babe, now go make me a sandwich? Like, or, like, the gym ones that, like, show off your side peck if you're that kind of a man? You're not a... You're not a tank top wearer, Forrest. Or at least I've never seen no, you one. No, I mean, uh, if I were more fit, there was a time when I might have been. Um, there was the only tank top I've ever worn. I forget how I acquired this thing. But as a joke, I was like, hey, you know this ridiculous tank top you got from your like dorm or frat or whatever at Stanford that is a, is a black tank and then in blue letters it says bro night every night. Um <laughs> And so I had that tank for a while, and at archivist shows, we would put it over and be like the, the thing hanging in front of the bass drum, and I wore it a few times. Wouldn't people think your band's name was Bro Night Every Night? Probably. Um, okay. <laughs> that's fine. Honestly, better band name. Uh, um, okay, yeah, men who wear tank tops are probably fine. Yeah, and so like that was, that was... The end probably ironic tank top wearing is probably also bad but that's that's what i did <laughs> it was a different time it was the the year of 2010 yeah sure so. was jesus christ <laughs> oh my god irony was still funny at the time you know i'm gonna turn 30 next year <laughs> i know and we're gonna have a great party about it i'm gonna be in boston <laughs> gonna have a great zoom party about it um, all right three men with plastic lawn fl- flamingos that's cool i like that i like that a lot i think that's like fun and quirky and cool and you don't take yourself too seriously yeah. also i like the florida aesthetic you know all of that the whole miami vice feel i can see that like, i'm really looking i'm looking for a dude who has that like look you know like linen pants you know lavender button down instead of miami vice whom? Phil Collins. Ah, oh, what a man! <laughs> did his uh, did the Genesis tour get canceled? I assume yes. It must have been. <laughs> <laughs> they're all they're all at risk. So yeah, Phil Collins is very much at risk. Also, <sighs> Boris Johnson gonna die? He's he's in the ICU. Like I don't want to get my hopes up. Also, also, Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne died. That was very, yeah. What the sad. fuck? Yeah. There was a period in my life when I thought uh, that they were the best band that there was. Oh, I will still, okay. I will still strenuously argue that, that he's a better songwriter than any Beatle. I agree. You know, Adam Schlesinger, Schlesinger? Oh, no. I'm not sure which one it is. Uh, okay. Is an incredible songwriter. He wrote that song... The one. The one from the movie where it's the best song in the that world. That thing you do. You know. Yes. Yeah, he wrote that. Uh, he, he's written a ton of stuff for TV and movies, but just like, if you, like, at some point... He's saying he wrote the music and lyrics songs, which are mm-hmm. good. I love those songs. Like, that's about, truly... Pop at, Goes My Heart, 
And at some point, Sorry, go back go and ahead. listen to Fountains of Wayne's like discography. Like every album's good. Okay, I will. There are more yeah, than just Stacey's so, mom. Since the last time we spoke, things have gotten really real. Like, things have gotten very, very real since the last time we had a conversation, I think. Yes, right? that seems correct to me. <laughs> I've left the Netherlands. I was quarantined for 14 days in my parents' bedroom. Boris Johnson's in the ICU. <sighs> uh, I'll tell you some men to avoid. Um, men with the coronavirus. Yeah, avoid <laughs> them. <laughs> Also, I just want to say, and we haven't finished the men to avoid, but um, podcast quality, like there's just haven't, there hasn't very bit, blah, blah, there hasn't been very much podcast content. And like, what better time to be making and putting out podcasts? A, you're not doing anything. And B, we need them. We need entertainment more than anything. Like, it's weird. Like, no, whenever- not more than anything. We need ventilators and PPE more. But like, <laughs> I, it's, I, I found it kind of odd. Like I've, I've, a few other people who I'm friends with have had the same experience. Where uh, even though, especially for the first like couple weeks of quarantine, like I wasn't doing anything because like my spring break got extended, so like I didn't have school shit I was doing. I was procrastinating on homework. Mm-hmm. Uh, even before I started doing the trivia things, like I was just like doing nothing. But since I wasn't going outside and walking around, like I didn't listen to the podcast either because I was like scrolling through Twitter and I was like I can't process listening to things while reading Twitter. Obviously, because those mm-hmm. are trying to process language through two things happening at once. So, like my my podcast listening dropped off significantly. It wasn't until I started working again and doing spreadsheets because I can process spreadsheet and listening to a podcast at the same time. I have been knitting a lot. I do a lot of things when I'm anxious. I do things with my hands. Yeah. So, like initially, I was knitting. Then I moved over to making masks. I've, I've made like thirty something masks now, and like. I need podcasts. Yeah, that's ideal. That's <laughs> ideal podcasting. That's uh, activity. Yeah, I mean, I've been watching a lot of Forensic Files. That's kind of been my podcast. That's fair. I'll tell you about men to avoid, according to a Forensic Files. Literally any man. Sweet. Literally, don't know men. Don't have a son. Don't have. Don't live near men. Don't have a job where a man might see you. Don't get out of your car. <laughs> men be murdering. Doesn't seem like horrible advice. <laughs> All right, number four, men who can't say the word menstruation. Fair, I guess. Uh, yeah, I would say I agree. I'm also. But you know what? I have some follow-up questions. Also, men Go who ahead. say it too much. <laughs> men who insist on calling it menstruation, I think, are also too avoid. <laughs> that was tough. <laughs> but you know, my follow-up question was like. Is it because he refuses to say it? Like one of those like congressmen who was like, I didn't know when we talked about periods, we'd have to talk about tampons. Or is it like, because it's too hard of a word to say, which is a, it is a hard word to say. I think it's the first so, one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cause it says can't. It doesn't say won't. Yeah, but I think he means won't. Can I say the word period? Okay. Um, all right. Five men named Spike. You see, this one's just totally wrong. Um, <laughs> because I've never seen Buffy. Snoopy's, so go ahead. <laughs> Snoopy's best brother is named Spike. Um, Spike is Snoopy a beagle. Spike is a beagle who lives in uh, Needles. I think is it Fresno, Nevada, or California? 
and he's got a lovable little mustache. Uh, I'll send you. Uh, a, I'll send. What? Send, I sent you a Google image link. Um, and he's just a delightful little dog. And like it is from later in the run of Peanuts, so where like cute. the Snoopy shit's getting a little bit silly and like unnecessary, and like every now and again the Snoopy sibling stuff goes off too far. But Spike is like uh -huh. the first one of Snoopy siblings that we get to see fairly often, and so it's before there's like Andy and Olaf and all these like Snoopy siblings that are like just I too didn't much. Know there were so many. And Spike is great. Siblings. Well, he is great though. He looks like he's about to, you know experience some fear and loathing in las vegas yeah like, like, he looks like he's just like stoned out of his mind on peyote <laughs> okay. all right um i don't have any thoughts about men named spike probably don't i don't know there are some like names that i avoid like kyle's and kenny's and that kind of a thing i think justin's are bad but justin's are bad uh there's a few others but Spike is not something that I've really had an issue with. Yeah, Spike is like a Men fucking Archie character. Yeah, yes. And ass name. We don't uh, we <laughs> And we don't avoid men on Riverdale here. So <laughs> um <laughs> Okay, last one. Men who light matches on their zippers. Forest, <laughs> what's going on? Okay. So as a former Boy Scout of America, <laughs> I can speak to this one. <laughs> Um, it doesn't it doesn't work very well with like normal matches, but like light anywhere matches, where like any surface that has like a reasonable amount of friction, they've got like an extra like sulfurous tip that'll uh, allow you to light it on there. And if you don't have the matchbox handy, um, oftentimes just like on your person, the best thing you can light a match on is in fact the zipper of your pants. Um, okay. And like yeah, it's kind of obnoxious, and I'm sure if you're like making a show of it, it sucks. But like, and obviously when I was doing this, I was like a 13-year-old jackass. Jackass? <laughs> um, was, it, was it jack off or jackass? Nah, I couldn't decide. Could not decide. Um, and so, like, yeah, probably I should have been avoided if, um, if at all possible. We should be avoiding 13-year-old boys anyway, just for legal reasons. Well, yes. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like, in the grand scheme of things... I don't think it's that bad. This falls under... So, I, first of all, I didn't know you could do that. This just falls under, like, guys who roll their own cigarettes kind of territory. Where I'm like... I feel like you looked up in a manual how to be cool, and then you just went for it without cultivating, like, an interest... Like, being interesting. Like, I know a lot of guys like that. <laughs> so, it seems like... I've never seen them light anything on their zippers, because we don't use matches anymore as a society but like at least for in polite company yeah i don't think like, they did it in the 90s either though yeah wait a minute dan <laughs> um, <laughs> why are we lighting matches because like truly the only time i've used i guess on occasion for like candles or whatever but like normally not i have a fucking lighter like a normal person right. um, i only ever used like matches in the boy scouts and even then or like only like on backpacking trips where like it would be better to have like a little prescription pill bottle with like 10 striking rear matches because that's lighter than carrying around a big ass weird like lighter is it um is it telling us to avoid boy scouts or former boy scouts i mean that's that's fair 
That's fair. I know a lot of former Boy Scouts, and I think you're the only one I like. There's a lot of bad ones. So. Many of my, my yeah. a lot of my close friends are were in the Boy Scouts with me, and I like them. But there's a lot of bad apples in that group. Uh, and that's it for Men to Avoid. Let's finish this. Yeah, chapter twenty six. <laughs> Oof. So Sato's like S- Professor Langdon, Professor Langdon, and he's like coming out of a fugue state. Yeah. And Langdon's like refusing to explain his real the reason he realized he was here so he's like gotta uh think hard and come up with a bullshit thing he's like he's like you're a teacher improvise <laughs> improvise classic teachers improvising um and then he's like well we know that we're wrong if there's multiple symbolic languages involved yeah back to talking about the iiix 885 oh, yeah. thing Oh, sorry. We're back to his eidetic, eidetic memory. <laughs> yep. We're, do- we're doing. We're skimming through his mental encyclopedia of symbols. <laughs> um. And so he's like, "Well, uh, turn upside down." And so they do. And now it says SBB thirteen. Yeah. Um, and that turns out to be a place in the Capitol building. I, I'm just moving through it. Yeah, no, for I mean, sure. It's all stupid. It's just like we're on chapter 26, and we just we just got a clue. We just got a clue, we, and it took them <laughs> like six chapters here to realize that I I I X upside down B upside down B S when you turn it upside down is S right side up B, right side up B, X, I, I, I. Yeah, I mean, it's very clearly an upside down B. Like, it's not even... It doesn't look like anything other than an upside down B. And so Anderson has okay. to go through this whole thing where he's like, um, you know, he doesn't want to take them there because it's probably someone's private office. And Sato's like, motherfucker, you're taking us to SBB 13. You will unlock it for me or I will send in the CIA with a battering ram. Isn't the CIA supposed to be yep. for non-domestic things? Uh, it's a matter of national security, Forrest. Whatever. Um, um, so they're like, okay, so we're going to go to SBB, and SBB is, um, you know, it's uh, lower levels, and it's uh, going to be small. And it's going to be underground. Yeah. And Sato also has a little side thing out of, out of earshot of Langdon where she tells Anderson to get her, you know, the x-rayed Langdon's bag when he came in. And so presumably the digital files that must still exist, which I doubt that they keep the actual x-ray. There's no way they can record the video of every x-ray that goes through the thing, but whatever. She's like, you know, I want the x-ray image of his bag to see what's in there. Uh, just send it directly to my BlackBerry and don't let Langdon know that we're doing this. Oh, also give me, give and, me Superior's ring to put in my pocket. But like, so, so far we've had the hand, the hand has a number of tattoos on it. Uh, and so she's like, take the ring, leave the hand. And I feel like they might still need the hand. No, I mean, they don't end up needing it because it's a book, but like, yeah, I wouldn't just take a piece of the evidence yeah, I don't know. It's me. all very stupid. Especially when this guy's like into like weird upside down symbology and he's obviously unhinged. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we get an unnecessary preview of where we're about to go. A sprawling labyrinth of 
tiny chambers and tight passages buried beneath the crypt where it's just like i don't want to do another claustrophobia just a big basement and like honestly look at the map of it it doesn't seem that fucking horrible and claustrophobic to me yeah it it seems fine but you know we have to have a claustrophobia moment so we can remember that he's batman there's like a little like uh anecdote of tad lincoln getting lost down there they're just lifted from a little like autobiography someone else wrote about like being friends with abe lincoln's son and there's an anecdote there where it's like oh yeah no my brother and him just like went down there and uh were down there for a whole day and got kind of lost and had to get rescued and it sounds it sounds anecdotal it sounds to me as though this is a story that was like they were down there for a half an hour got a little lost got turned around, came back up. And then in, in, in the telling of that story over the years, it became like, Oh my God, we're done for a full day. And like, we like couldn't find food and we couldn't find anyone else down there. It seems very, it seems like a exaggerated childhood memory to me. It doesn't actually seem when you look at it, like it is that complicated of a basement. Chapter 27. Yeah. Yeah. Just a useless chapter. Just (laughs) so cis sex specialist, Mark Zubianis is on the scene watching the football game and Trish Dunn has called and he's like, this bitch calling when there's a sports game on. How dare she? But then she uses her feminine wiles and she, you know, tries to get him to do it. And he's like, fine, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's important. And she's like, listen, I'm hiring a hacker. I just need to know who has it. Who has this document? I'm happy to pay them for it, but I just can't figure out who has it. And it's like, you already have a hacker on the phone. I don't know why you would pay for it. It was like a, but she's a good person. So she's not going to download a pizza, you know? And then Um, he's like, why why are you going through so much effort for this? And she's like, it's a favor for a friend. And he's like, must be a special friend. And she goes, she is. And Zubianis chuckled and held his tongue. I knew it. See, see. Was I wrong? Are you going to sit there and tell me that I'm wrong? <laughs> I have never told you you're wrong on this. <laughs> and then some time passes and she's like, so how are you? And he's like, no, no, I'm busy. I'm watching football and doing the hacking. And she's like, thank you. And then he's like, women. And I wrote, be lesbians. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm glad this chapter was there. Do you know? I, well, I am glad for just for that reason. That's fair. Um, it gets a, some confirmation of the sapphic undertones. Uh, do you know the video of the guy who's arguing with his dad, I think, or his brother about... She came down in a bubble, Doug. Have you seen this this video? About the Wizard of Oz? Yeah. Sounds vaguely familiar, but I can't right. recall it directly. I'm going to send it to you, and then later this week, we're going to have another call, and we're going to talk about this, okay. because... I'm in the weeds over here because I don't know what they're arguing about. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, okay, chapter 28. So Langdon's like, where are they taking me? And so they're going in this crypt. There are no bodies in the crypt. They just call it the crypt because it's uh, underground. Okay, if there's no objections here, unless you have anything specific you want to talk about this one, all that happens is they go down like two stairways and through a complicated basement. Yep, that's right. Nothing else happens in this chapter. That's right. Sick. Chapter 29. <laughs> um, chapter 29 is where Malach finally fucking drives through the goddamn gates <laughs> of the SMSC. Yeah, he has a, a brief back and forth with the guard 
And he's like, I have to look at the identification. And he's like, oh, but I'm a guest. And he's like, I still have to look at the ID. And so he does. And the driver's license showed one Christopher Abaddon from Calorama Heights. And there's a pocket square. And he says, who the hell wears a pocket square to the DMV? Like, there's a pocket square on the on the license. Yeah, I mean, there's there's there's, like, there's a little bit of, like, uh, whoop-de-doo here because, you know, uh, Malah is driving the limo and he is in one disguise. And so he pretends to have to talk to the person in the back of the limo to get his ID to show to the guard at the gate. Um, who doesn't, doesn't, Moloch is so good in disguise, he doesn't realize the driver and the person in the ID are in fact the same person. That's right. And then he's free and he gets through. And then Moloch has a, uh, another back fl- flashback. Yep. Uh. <laughs> and so he does the same thing where they're like, Mr. Solomon's in the penthouse department. Uh, use the last elevator on the right. It goes all the way up. So yes, he's he's so flashing he goes, back here to a, like it can't be more than a, a night or two ago when yeah, like yesterday. he uh, yeah when he's doing the same thing, but at Peter Solomon's house instead of at the SMSC. And so he well, this is funny because he goes to a dark corner near the elevators in the parking lot, and then he like. <laughs> opens the partition and then like slides through head first this is like that beyonce which, song <laughs> it's just so funny to me to think about this like large bald man kind of like slithering it says slithered yep. like, <laughs> yeah sometimes when you're doing disguise shit you're gonna have to look silly in the process <laughs> um and then he so he goes up to speak to Solomon, there's this is this is where he finds out about the tea thing because he's like, oh, do I smell tea? And Solomon's like, oh, my parents always greeted guests with tea. I've carried on that tradition, um, and so that's how Malak knew to have the tea ready for Catherine. Uh, and he's like, listen, uh, so we're brothers, we're, you know. I'm happy to be friends with you and be both Masons. <laughs> it's been a really good time, and I'm really enjoying this. And he's like, sick. I'm glad to meet you. And I'm glad that you're a millionaire. Yeah. Um, and Peter kind of intimates that um, the decision to elevate Malach to the 33rd degree is not one he would have made had he been the sole decider because uh, Malach is like, thanks for, you know, letting me in the club. And Peter's like, uh, that wasn't really my decision. It's a vote of everybody. So he doesn't like sort of say that <laughs> I don't want you here, but he like sort of implies that he didn't want him there. Yeah. And he's like, don't I look familiar to you? And he's like, no, not in the slightest. Uh, and he's like, ah, oh, well, do you remember um, the night that your mom died? Uh, <laughs> so basically, he's like, "Listen, I want, I want, I want the secrets. Give me the secrets. Give me the Washington secrets. I'm here for the Washington secrets." And Solomon's like, "I don't have uh, uh, those." Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. B- before he before he actually like fully says like I'm the one who killed her, he says that as he's tasing him a first time, and then he starts yelling at him. Yeah. And then they say uh, he wondered how many people had ever seen the great Peter Solomon cower, yeah. um, which is like, you know, the great Peter Solomon kind of speaks to your little, your, your great uh, theory. That's true. But also this is something that Dan Brown includes a lot where he says like a character wonders how many other people have done the thing that that person is doing. And uh, like, it's fine a couple of times, but in the section that we've in these 10 chapters we've seen it twice yeah he's not a good writer is the thing 
<laughs> right, but it also, I think, betrays something in Dan Brown's mind, where Dan Brown constantly thinks about if other people are having the same exclusive experience as he is. You know when, when you're with your friends and you're doing a fun, like, inside joke time, and you think, like, I wonder if these words have ever been said together before. Like, it yeah. just... So yeah, he tases him again, trusses him up, and puts him into his limo and drives him away and says, you're going to tell me all your secrets, motherfucker, because his his initial interrogation didn't succeed, but he's got more advanced methods. Yep. And in chapter 30, um, again, all that really happens here is they go into the sub-basement, which is SBB. Um, There's more stuff that gets talked about <laughs> god damn it <laughs> we get like a little previously on um gang this is just not a fun book like i was so excited about the, this book. the really important part that happens in this chapter is that um there's some kind of legend of a masonic pyramid that has to do with being a 33rd degree mason and langdon sorry i just want to back up a little yeah. bit before we get there if that's go okay. for it so um, it talks about how, like, listen, so these mysteries originated in Egypt, and then they moved to Europe, and then they were in the Invisible College, and then Isaac Newton has some secret papers, because he had an all-consuming passion for the study of ancient alchemy and mystical wisdom, and, like, that's not untrue. He did, like, lose his marbles toward the end of his career, and start like uh, I mean poking his eye out when an apple hits to, you in like, the head real good would... you start to lose some brain cells. <laughs> it, and he yeah he was he just he really just did go bonkers. But they paint it here as like a he was in on some secrets. But he I think he was mostly in on some mercury poisoning. Yeah, and um, and then you know they I don't know. And she's like so so you know that Peter Solomon is a, is a 33rd degree Mason by she, I mean Sato and, uh, Langdon's like, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> and, and, uh, I don't know. It's all, it's all stupid. And, it, and the reason I bring it up is just because he's like, I love visiting the headquarters because the house of the temple is cool. It's like the Scott, it's like the Roslyn chapel in Scotland. Yep. And then, you know, you remember when we were reading Da Vinci Code and it was like, uh, the sloppy seconds of the angels and demons. <laughs> now we're getting sloppy thirds. I feel, that's, I feel like this is what happened. Like he learned about the Roslyn chapel and they were like, this inspired the house of the temple. And he was like the who of the, what you say. <laughs> and now we're, we're stuck. We're stuck. Yeah. It's like, um, did you ever read the series of unfortunate events? I never did. Okay. Well, this is not a spoiler. At the end of each book, there would be a visual clue as to the location of the next book. So like one of them takes place underwater. And so like, I think at the end of the 10th book, there was like, um, like a diver's helmet. And so then you knew you were going to be underwater for the next one. So, but this isn't like a, a motif on purpose. This is just me picking up the breadcrumbs and I'm going to try to see if we can get a, a clue as to where Inferno is going to be. I mean, uh, Inferno. I know, but I want to see if I can get a, a clue okay. forest. <laughs> um, so this whole discussion of 
33rd degree masons gets us to this Masonic pyramid thing. And Sata's like, you know, aren't pyramids like a portal to, to Godhood? And Lightning's like, again, this is a metaphor we're dealing with. And she's oh like, this is also an insane person we're dealing with who might not have a firm command of metaphors. And Lightning's like, oh, God damn it. They're like, there is that, you know, there, there is no pyramid with a golden head in that, that they brought to the new world that has all the secrets in it because they were trying to hide it from the church. It just didn't happen. It's just that he's like, they're like, oh, so this myth uh, relates to the ancient mysteries. And he's like, yeah, sure. They're, they're the foundation for lots of legends, like the Templars and the Rosicrucians and the Illuminati and the Alumbrados. And like two of those he's proven are real. <laughs> that, that's very true. Well, like well very recently. the Illuminati weren't really real. They were uh, fake resurrected by the Camerlengo to make it seem like they were real. Oh, God, you're right. I hate that I know this. <laughs> <laughs> but the Templars are real. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Uh, he, he spent so long. So, yeah, they brought it here. And they, so, so they came here because they were hoping America would remain free from religious tyranny. Oops. Which, like, lol. <laughs> um, it's that... In the 16th century, uh, almost all the secret fraternities had become exterminated by a growing tide of religious persecution. Um, not real, like not really. The church is like anti-secret society, but a they have their own called the Knights of Columbus, and that's been on for a long time. Like there's all these like mm-hmm. little secret societies, like the the Order of the Garter is kind of a secret society in the same way. Like the Templars were crushed by the church, that's true, um, but most of the other ones like to the extent that they existed, like the church was not cool with them, but like they were still around. Well, yeah. Yes. So they say in the 16th century and then they say that they come to the new world, but I, but they didn't come to the new world in the 16th century. No, we don't know. I mean, this is, this is, um, I don't know about your family, but I have, I have (laughs) an uncle who are really into this. Um, it's also on the history channel. I think it's like the mystery of Oak Island or something where there's this Island off the coast of Newfoundland somewhere. And like, it has this famously like complex cave system with this weird tidal thing that like, uh, when the tides are down, there's like this big extensive cave system where people think there's some like buried secret from, uh, somewhere in the past, but normally the tides are up. And so it's just like a death trap. And so these people will like say they find like, you know, uh, some 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 evidence that like oh the templars were here or some pirate treasure is buried here or anything like this and Hell so yeah. it's 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 like it's it's this thing where the whole idea of um either european traveled to the americas before 1492 um and, and some kind of like extensive presence there or some other groups who were there at the same time that we didn't know about. Cause like in the, in the 16th century, the Masons could well have sent some people over. Like there were, there were Europeans here. Um, mm-hmm. This is, this is off topic, but I have this book called a Basque history of the world, which um, is largely history of the Basque people. And it hypothesizes, so the Basques were highly valued as crewmen and navigators on a lot of tall ships. And um, 
they apparently had this secret about uh, these extremely rich fishing grounds. And this book posits that there was actually reasonably extensive contact well before 1492 between the Basques and um, this same kind of area off Newfoundland because he's he's, he's saying that the volume of cod they were catching and some pretty loosey-goosey linguistic evidence that there's linguistic (laughs) contact between Basque and like Algonquian languages indicates that maybe uh, they were up there in Canada. And I think that's fun to believe. That is fun to believe. uh, In National Geographic magazine, or the one for National Geographic Traveler magazine, there was a story about this woman who, like, learned that women could be Vikings-ish and then just went absolutely bonkers and became, like, totally obsessed with Vikings. Um, And it just just felt like a really white woman thing to do. I don't know. I mean, if you ever... ever, (laughs) I mean, I... I highly recommend reading at least one or two Icelandic sagas at some point in your life. Um, okay. But in, I forget whether it's the saga of the Greenlanders or the saga of Eric the Red, but in one of those, um, you know, it's, it's, they go and found a little colony again off the coast of Newfoundland. And like this, there is archeological evidence of for sure in like the, mm-hmm. I guess 11th century, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe the 10th century there were um, Icelandic settlements in what's now Canada. And I think it's Eric the Red's saga. Eric the Red's daughter is this Viking lady and she's there in Canada and she just goes apeshit with murdering people. It's truly wild. Oh. And it's kind of fun to read. Well, that's interesting. People also have crazy nicknames like, um, I don't think this is in that same saga, but there's like people named like Thora Shipbreast as a nickname for a lady. Um, Ooh, I like that. In one of the sagas, there's a guy. There's a guy called Ivar Horsecock. <gasps> I mean, most of the things are just like the black or the red for hair color, but there's some really goofy nicknames. Um, Ivan Fart is a guy. Olaf Peacock is a guy. Um, uh, struggling to think of a lot of good ones right now, but there's a lot of really good nicknames in the sagas. There's a, to plug another podcast, there's a podcast called Saga Thing where these two medievalists go and talk about the sagas and uh, at the end they they do rankings of like best nicknames, uh, best bloodshed, and things like this. <laughs> I, um, I have a friend and she traced her lineage and the furthest back they could go was in some like tiny Scottish village and the last person they could trace it to was a woman whose name I think was Amy Took a Peach. It's pretty good. <laughs> and that's all they know. They don't know where she took the peach from or what her last name was or anything else. She's just on the record as Amy Took a Peach. I like that very much. So Me too. Do we want to end it here? I mean, you read through chapter 32, so do- I think we should power through and do it. Um, all right, let's do it. I think we, we're done talking about the Masonic Pyramid. They talk about it for forever more, but we've they do, and then it. they they go downstairs. Um, so we're d- downstairs now. Yeah, and then we and, cut back to Trish okay. Dunn at the SMSC, where she has gone. She's volunteered to let Doctor Abaddon in through the front door because she's curious about Catherine's personal life because she wants to be more involved in it. Yes, uh, we get a peek at the the navigation system within the dark room which is a carpet yep 
I'm glad um, I'm, I'm glad that contract was made with us and has now been fulfilled. And she is going through the darkness and then she made it out of the darkness into the hallway. Yeah, I mean, we have a little flashback where Catherine <laughs> is first guiding her down the carpet walkway and it goes on for like four pages and it's so unnecessary. Yeah, it goes on for quite some time and then she's like, we made it and then we cut away to Catherine and Catherine's like, what is this document? What is it? She's got to know. What is it? And then the key uh, phrase she's been looking Dr. for Abaddon are secret location soon. underground, Washington, D.C., ancient portal, a pyramid and engraved symbolon. Yep. That's it. Chapter 32. Last one. Um, and it starts appropriately so with almost as, there. We're so, so close. <laughs> as Trish has emerged into the light, Langdon is just now going into the darkness. Oh, this time you made the connection. <laughs> Thanks. So. so they're like, this used to be a dirt floor and it was filled with rats. And Langdon was like, oh, I don't like rats. And I wrote Ratman. Do you um, realize we're not into <laughs> SBB yet? We're still in just SB. I know. <laughs> we spent so long walking through corridors in the Capitol building in this fucking So book. we we just got to it. They got to HB and they're like, oh no, we overshot it. Got to go back. Because no, it's and SB someone, Senate basement, HB is house basement. And then they're like, the S and SBB doesn't stand for Senate. And then they get interrupted by someone who's here with some keys. And then they're like, the original keys uh, lost, but here is an auxiliary box. And like, what? Lost? He says it's lost because no one's requested it for ages. Forrest, does that make sense to you? We're going to find out. We're going to find out in like chapter two where the original key is. Yeah, but what? Yeah, no, it sucks. I mean, he says that all the all the rooms down there are empty except for SBB thirteen, which is marked down as private, initialed by the architect himself, and the architect is like the head honcho of the Capitol building. He's not. Yeah, actually, he didn't design yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and then you know it's weird. It says that this particular private space is set aside for the use of Peter Solomon. We know him. We know him. Um, they say like, Hey, please, please find the key for SVB 13. Okay. Which like, come on, Robert. Yeah. I just, I feel like Robert has it in his box. Um, and then they're like, we're working on the digital image that you requested, which like, yeah. And Anderson quickly hushes him up. So Robert doesn't glom on that. Um, yeah. But digital image again for us, like people don't talk like this. <laughs> yeah i don't know man um and finally they open the door and start walking down the stairs and then they get a blueprint we get a map of the basement uh well so they're like okay so now it's dark and they're like langdon please come into this dark small enclosed space and he's like i'd rather not and they were like the s in sbb doesn't stand for senate it stands for sub and langdon's like sub and they said SBB is the capital sub basement. So does it is it sub basement basement? <laughs> I don't know. It sucks. Um, but also, <laughs> I definitely read before and had my doubts about um, you know at the end of Da Vinci Code when like Sophie 
magically cures Robert Langdon of all his ills because she's like the great, 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 great granddaughter of Jesus. Uh-huh. Yeah. I read a thing that was like, oh, and after that point, Dan Brown never gets, or Robert Langdon never gets claustrophobic in a book again. And like, he's not outright saying he's claustrophobic here, but it's still like clearly a thing for him. It's not yeah. like, a, it's not a debilitating thing. Also, it's weird to write a Mary Sue character with a fatal flaw, which is his claustrophobia, and then like have him healed of it. In book two? Like, yeah. I don't know. That's like your one humanizing. It's almost like he's it's a bad writer. <laughs> you can't keep saying that for us because the point <laughs> of this podcast is to expose how bad of a writer he is. If we just said like Dan Brown is a bad writer, we would not have a podcast. That's true. It's almost as if podcasts don't really serve any kind of illuminating uh, purpose. Whoa. <laughs> Hold, hold up on that but also you, you also have this map of the basement there right in your book i have it it's weird to put it here usually you get maps at the beginning right no it's not like i wouldn't right? get lost in this um looking at it and all the all the fucking doors are numbered yep yeah like they, they immediately know when they've overshot the stairs because they move into the h section he describes so. there being signs pointing you towards blocks of rooms just like in a fucking yeah. hotel so you don't get lost. <laughs> Maybe they put those in after Tad Lincoln almost died. Could be. Lena, do you have an angel for this section? <sighs> I'd be hard pressed. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not <laughs> <Yeah>. easy. <laughs> it's not a good section. This guard who showed up with the key right on time is pretty good. I like that guy. He didn't have very many lines. Um, my angel is... Um, Constantino Brumidi for painting that cool fresco. Can I take mine back? Yeah. I would like it to be Trish instead because Trish had to talk to a guy that hit on her previously to help out her lady friend. And let me tell you, it sucks to have to call on someone that has hit on you for a favor. This makes sense. So Trish really, you know, really put herself out of her comfort zone there. Do you have That's a all I have demon for this section? Yeah, let me think. I mean, Malach was not good about doctor-patient confidentiality in the slightest. Yeah, but he's also not a doctor. Still, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, who is my My demon, demon is Mark Zubianis, the hacker guy, just because he seems like he really fucking sucks. He seems like a jerk. He does have good taste in uh, treats, though. He's got a bag of pirate's booty. Oh, yeah, we washed over that one. Those things are good. I'll tell you what. I had a question about this. So the guard accepts the ID of Christopher Abaddon, although he can't see Christopher Abaddon. So he's just like, I trust that this man on this ID is in the back of this limo because it's an, an embassy on wheels, as we learned. Exactly. That just doesn't... I mean, that's not how checking IDs works. It is not, but... Is that um, how they do it? Maybe for maybe maybe for the very rich and powerful, uh, they just need the formal thing of like having a little picture for their logs. Like, oh, we, we check the ID, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's an understanding that we don't actually look at the person. We just uh, take a picture of their ID. It's really hard for me to pinpoint a demon here for us, because like... 
I wasn't even moved to disgust by anyone's actions. Like I was just like Langdon didn't do anything like egregiously awful. Sato like seemed to be pretty much on it and just like trying to keep Langdon's feet on the ground. Um, it was just so boring. She did threaten to take him to a CIA torture room at one point. Yeah, but I would do that for Robert Langdon. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let the UN hear that. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's Catherine. Catherine should know her brother better. Yeah, Catherine's not a good sister. Catherine, apparently they know everything about each other, but then he, she gets one text and she's like, oh, yep. Also, she's been a long time trying to pry into his dealings with his therapist. I know. That like, seems I think, I think, I think, too much. I think she is more at fault in this than um, the fake's therapist yeah because she like w- was ready to just divulge whatever and like well she also, respect her brother's boundaries and she was like he's not mentally unstable what is he going to a shrink like this is probably why peter solomon wouldn't tell you if he did go to a therapist because you sound judgmental as shit right now that's exactly like, right Catherine. yeah um do you have a grade for <laughs> overall dan brownness of this section like we discussed last time there are some different elements to dan brownness that so like with regard to like unnecessary exposition like a plus but like oh god it was not enjoyable in the slightest and we'll get to that grade but like there was no action there was like one clue that was decrypted but it was like I mean, okay, like, the fact that there was one clue is not very Dan Brownie, but the fact that it was decrypted in, like, the dumbest way possible <laughs> is very Dan Brown. <laughs> I don't know. I'll give it a C, I guess, just I'm right go, down I'm the going, middle. I'm going D+. Plus. I have that same same kind of idea where I'm doing a rubric on, or, like, on, on the level of um, unnecessary, ponderous, incorrect exposition, uh-huh. like, through the roof. But, like, that has to be weighted with the other elements of what makes up a Dan Brown novel. And, like, there's not a single action beat in these 12 chapters. Yeah. Um, and there's been barely any action beats at this point in the whole fucking book. And we're at chapter we're 32. In, I mean, like, I got tased, but that's not that interesting. We're at page 140 of this, I don't know, 500-page book. And there's nothing happening. Yeah. Um, it's like, I feel like, okay, like, we had, like clues per minute in angels and demons you know because we had like four guys to find and it was like clue after clue after clue and people were dying on fountains and like here i feel like there's one clue like we just got to get the key to this pyramid and then it's over well, like the amazing thing about this book lena is um just to wet your wet everyone's whistle here for the next section there's gonna be a <laughs> grotesque murder and it's so fucking boring <laughs> um, oh, God. Uh, just my overall enjoyability grade for this section is an f it was dog shit oh it sucked f f it took me so long i, I only got to chapter 32 because i was having i couldn't read it like normally like these are supposed to be page turners right like they're supposed to be pulpy like unput downable action books and like in the past, that's been the case. Like, when I picked up Angels and Demons, like, I got through that one, you know? 
Digital Fortress, don't want to talk about it. But D- Da Vinci Code, yes, I got through it. But like, this was hard to deal with. Yeah, for me, it's like I'm. I it it's less a page turner because I like am eager to find out what happens. And for me, it's a page turner because I'm like mad at him. Be like, okay, I just want to know how all the pieces fit together here so I can like piece together exactly what's wrong and dumb about this. But like nothing, there's no positive thing driving me forward. It's just pure spite driving me through these fucking pages. Yeah, absolutely. I just like, I also just want to get to something interesting so bad. Like when I saw a glimpse of the map as I was turning the pages, I was like, oh, something different. (laughs) Yeah. And also follow us on social media. We actually have been posting more regularly on Twitter. Yeah, because none of us have anything to do. Um, That's correct. You can follow. Okay, so you can find us at Dan Brown Code Pod on Twitter. Uh, we're on Facebook. Um, that's those are the two socials. Um, and uh, you can follow me at Lena Jamili. You can follow me at Wishbone Ulysses on Twitter. Um, someday, and, I'll, someday um, I'll go back to Mastodon. Some bright blessed day. <laughs> And uh, please leave a review for us on Stitcher or iTunes or whatever you use to listen to the podcast. Again, it helps people find the podcast, which has been happening. People have been, you know, showing up. So I really appreciate that. Um, also, a little while ago, I read our iTunes reviews, and there is, like, some really sweet ones from people who I don't think I know in real life. I was very excited. <laughs> that's really nice. Oh, thank you. If you've left a review, thank you so much. Uh, you can tweet at me and... I'll give you a public shout out if you'd like that. I don't know. Great. Yeah, be friends with us on social media. <laughs> yeah. And have a have a have a have a good I was gonna say good night, but it's not necessarily night for you. But have a good um time is mostly meaningless at this point, I guess. There is no such thing as time. What I do wanna say is be safe, limit unnecessary travel, and uh, you know it's all kind of a weird time.